What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Shane Cobalt. Shane's a Canadian magician who's kind of flown under the radar in the last decade or so of his practicing and performing magic. He's lectured in a number of countries on a number of occasions, and you may have heard about him for his extensive knowledge of Erdnays and his love of sort of the old magic history effects and stories. We talk a lot about magic history in this episode, and it gets pretty dense. There's a lot of deep references and some really good recommendations for magicians trying to find new material or work on new ways of doing things. Shane and I have been friends for several years, and I'm so glad that he was able to sit down with me. He just got into Los Angeles. He splits time really all over the world doing shows and lectures, but he spends a lot of time in L.A. at the castle. So if you have a chance to meet him, say hi, tell him what you thought of the episode. As always, if you haven't already, follow us on all the social media channels, join our newsletter. You can find us on Instagram by searching Art of Magic or searching Magical Thinking Podcast. Same goes for Facebook. We also have a Facebook group that you can join and be a part of the conversation. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary of Art of Magic and Magical Thinking, of course, at the end of May. And that's going to be super exciting. You don't want to miss all the crazy things that we're doing. So again, make sure to join our newsletter so that you can stay up to date on those developments. Anyway, get into Shane's episode. He's awesome. It's fun and funny, and the conversation is deep and dense and and great. I know you're going to like it. So, Shane Cobalt, enjoy. We need like a soundbar. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, we need some like wacky mix. Just like fart noises <laughs> and cow moos and goofy and Elmo names coming up. How's it going? Good. It's going How good. you doing? How's life? Doing pretty good. I just moved to LA. I saw that. Yeah. Facebook showed up. Elliot has now moved to Los Angeles. I'm like, wait a minute. This can't be this recent. You Like, literally just. Yeah. Like, a week ago kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You loving it? So far. I Where really, I've only... Where uh, I'm in San Diego. Oh, okay. So, you're coming down. Or coming up. Coming up. Coming up. Yeah, yeah. You're coming down. I'm coming down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, just moved here. Going to be seeing a lot more of you. That'd be nice. Yeah. It'd be fun. I'm excited. Me too. I get to go to the castle so much now. Which is like the best, right? Still not a member. Me neither. Me neither. Who needs to be these days? I mean, I, yeah. I would be a member if it made more sense to be a member. That To me, there's there's not enough incentive to become a member right now. You don't even live in this country. There's also that. <laughs> um, but I love the castle. I absolutely love the castle. You ever read the book um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell? No. Or did you see the Netflix thing? No. It's really neat. If you, if you, the book is better than the thing because it's just more detailed. But they talk about stuff that parallels magic really interestingly. Mm-hmm. One of the fascinating parts is they talk about a non-practicing magicians, and they say that magicians haven't practiced magic in like a thousand years or five hundred years or whatever. And then this one guy comes along and claims to be a practicing magician. Mm-hmm. They're like, "What? No one does." Spells. Wait, somebody was telling me about this. Yeah. That's, it's a really, really cool thing. And then there's another guy they find, and this other guy also does that. Yeah, somebody was telling me about this. I don't remember who it was, uh, but it sounds super interesting. So, like, you, the person that does they, they just, can they actually study. do, like, wizardry, and yeah. nobody gives a shit. So imagine, like, there's guys, like, in our, in our magic world that just read the books. Yeah. Or they collect the books, but they don't actually do any of the techniques. Mm-hmm. They can tell you a lot of stuff, yeah. but they can't do anything. It's just it's exactly that. Or they can do all of it, but they shouldn't do all of it for... Or they're not comfortable doing it for non-magicians. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I, yeah, I'm not as interested in policing magicians as I am, uh, like, having the Magic Castle be 
you know, the center, the most famous center for seeing magic in the world and people going in there and not knowing the difference between a paid performer and a non-paid performer. Yeah. I mean, Bill Goodman and I chatted about this before and he said, you know, he goes, the castle's not what it was when I was growing up. He goes, man, we used to walk around here and like Kuda Bucks would be hanging out and like in any given night, you'd go see Larry Jennings work on something new and every week he had something new to show you. If you missed it from last week, you missed it because he just like came up with it, wrote it down and moved on. And totally forgot all the material before. So every week he had like 10 things to show you. I'm like, whoa. He goes, yeah. He goes, Vernon was hanging out. Charlie Miller was here. He was like, the castle was bustling. Business was terrible, but the castle was amazing. And it's like, we don't have that anymore. It's not the same thing. In my opinion, I think that's largely because there's a lot of performers that avoid the castle because of that specific quality control um, potential issue. So like, I know a brilliant magician will not come perform at the castle. Like perform, will not be hired. He will not take the gig. Because he does not want to be on the same bill as other people that aren't as good as he thinks they should be to be performing for the public like that. And I can totally respect that. 100% respect that. And then one argument, of course, oh, it's elitist. Well, potentially it is, but guess what? Cut your teeth somewhere else. Or if you want to be good at something, there's other ways to do it. Like you train properly or, and they can work on something. Makes perfect sense to me. If there's a performance space and magician or non-magician, sorry, non-performing magician members can go in there and do their own thing privately with other performing magician members, then at least there's some sort of way to introduce. Yeah. I think uh, that's what the classroom ought to be for. Exactly. Instead of another offshoot performance room, it should be what it is called. Um, yeah, that room has become unfortunately kind of a. I did a fun a set in there once. Did you? Yeah. What did you and do? I'm not even supposed to do magic in there because I'm not a member, but I was in there using the classroom as what it's supposed to be for, which is basically a glorified jam room. Yeah. Because then there were two other people, both magicians. And one of them had been to a magic convention and was showing us stuff Forty was doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was, you know, it was just us. And somebody poked their head in and they were like, oh, are you doing magic in here? And we were like, well, not really. And they were like, can we see one trick? And the guy showing me Forty stuff, he's not a performer. He's like, I'm not doing this. Yeah. My buddy was like, I've, I've had eight whiskeys. I'm not even going to remember what he's showing me. I can't perform for these people. So I was like, okay. So they go and sit down. These like four people come in and I do triumph and I do it. Uh, and as a matter, I've told this on the podcast before, but I performed a set, three tricks, mm-hmm. and I we had just come from the museum where I saw a magician member do a show for a crowd that made me fucking bananas. Uh, Why? Because he stomped all over every magic moment with the next trick. Everything was way too fast. He wasn't speaking clearly. The audience couldn't understand him. So he was doing technically decent, proficient mm-hmm. magic, uh, but it just wasn't magical, and it wasn't really very entertaining. So my whole body reacted to that, <laughs> and I felt really bad because I made me and my friend and the other guy sit down. We're all friends. I don't know why I said it like that. Me and my two friends. Yeah. We, I was like, here, let's watch the show, and I regretted it. So we went to the classroom. <laughs> we literally went to the other side of the castle in a room by ourselves to like cleanse ourselves, and then people come in. So I'm doing. Uh, so they That's sit down. That's a funny idea. A cleansing room in the castle. Right. <laughs> a horrible performer. Come to the cleansing room. So I, <laughs> so I, I um, inadvertently. I'm raging against this guy I just saw, and it, so I'm I do Vernage Triumph. Oh, that's not even true. That's the second trick I did in the set. The first trick uh, is one of my favorite tricks. It's one of Helder's tricks, um, and I did it. It's very slow. There's a lot of time. You know, I can play with the audience, but I'm normally a very upbeat, amplified 
personality, yeah. right? For for myself when I'm performing. But this was very slow. It was very um, nonchalant, lackadaisical, sarcastic, <laughs> and I was just like playful. Could, playful. I, it was it was playfully uh, dismissive. Yeah. Right? Okay. So I, you know, I was making jokes about how they barged in here and interrupted our time and things like that. But uh, it was all very slow, and, and then so I'm doing this trick for these four people that came in, and then somebody pokes their head in, and then thirty people come in. That's and sit the down problem. In the middle of the That's trick. exactly the problem. They think it's a place to actually. Oh, oh, oh well, guys, there's a see, there's a hidden room to see magic in. Yeah, come yeah. on in. So yeah. everyone comes in, and yeah. Uh, and oh, then man. the rest of the story is unimportant, and, and people have heard it before. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that whole that whole idea is you know, and there there is I think it's called the OC Club or the OC Posse. Or yeah, the OC Posse. That um, is supposed to police who performs and whatever. But just the OC Posse is at the Castle Knights. Yeah. Oh yeah. go back and forth. You know, just I don't know. But I'm always stuck in the idea of like. To go back to the French magician that won't come over here and perform, do we try and because uh, he doesn't want to come over here because he doesn't? I'm assuming, or let's just put a hypothetical person in and say somebody doesn't want to perform at the castle because the people on the bill aren't as good as that person is, or aren't as good as the people that ought to be performing at the castle, right? So, are you hurting magic in the future by not setting an example? Hundred percent, yes. Yeah, of course, you are. Yeah, yeah. But okay, you also assume which that you're going to get booked for the castle to begin with, which also changes things, right? Which is the greater, which is the greater loss, though, is is a hypothetical, amazing, phenomenal performer not coming over here and showing people how it ought to be done, and also providing an excellent experience for uh, the lay public who mm-hmm. are coming to see amazing magic. Well, I think someone's going to get bumped. That's what you need to consider, right? Yeah. The last year, you know people, and you can look back and say, okay, every week here's who was performing. Yeah. So. If you're going to go back around and he's going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to perform because there's too many people who aren't good enough, by him saying, yeah, you know what, I'll do it, and them actually moving forward with it, that puts you in a better position because mm-hmm. you would presumably bump someone who wasn't as good as you. That would be the assumption. So in a way, I, I think he... he That's to say that everybody else would come back the same year, though. Oh, true. That's an assumption. But yeah. I mean, if, if you believe that your bar is higher than theirs and you get hired, mm-hmm. math and we would hope taste and standards would dictate that you have now taken the spot in someone who's perhaps less qualified or who... Doesn't quite meet that bar. Doesn't get to, to pour the castle. Mm-hmm. So, anywho, taste. Do you want to start this thing? Yeah, let's. Okay, start. I was gonna say let's start this thing. I'm like that should not be in the podcast. Is that's that's a great thing about the magic castle? Like how things should be changed. It'd yeah. be a fun chat. We already. St- I mean, we've started recording a long time. I know. That's I know all going to be in there. But uh, I'll take out specifics. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that going. Elliot and Shane talk shit for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then it goes into the... And then Elliot it. and Shane talk shit for two and a half hours. <laughs> and here's a podcast. Yeah. So top changes are good moves. And then that's it. It just top cuts. It's <laughs> great. Top change, pass, double lift. All good stuff. That's all you need. Uh, yeah. Okay. What else so how do you, how do you want to organize things? Do you have like a particular... Do you have, do you have no an idea of what you want to... We have a, we have a talk. This is it. Thanks for listening, by the way. <laughs> you had a blog. I read your blog. Yeah. A long time ago. It's like five years that thing was going. Yeah. It'll come back. Um, you keep saying that. I know. I do keep saying that. There's tech issues involved in moving it. I'm going to revamp it. And the, bro- the blog looked very simple, but the complexities behind the scenes were like from moving from Tumblr to my own Drupal hosted thing, there was just huge IT problems because Tumblr isn't really, the API isn't really friendly. So you can't really pull what you've written mm-hmm. and put it on. When you do that for like three years, you don't want to lose all your stuff. Yeah. But you don't want to keep two things going in tandem. Yeah. So 
I had to get a guy to write a custom script to move it to my Drupal site, which is where it is now. And I actually, when I do post it, there's a, a cron job that runs and it double posts. It posts it back to the Tumblr as well. Yeah. Um, and then there's another automated thing that, that takes it immediately, throws it up on socials. So yeah. back then it worked perfectly, but now I want to move all that off of Tumblr and off of the server that's currently hosting it with Drupal and move it to like, uh, I think probably Google Cloud or either Amazon Web Services, just to have a cloud-based, simple pop-on, do my thing, pop-on. Yeah. Amusingly, do you know why the blog started? No. Tumblr had an amazing feature, which was you could just call a number, a special phone number, and whatever you said would automatically record and save it on your blog as an audio, like a podcast. Yeah. It was for Magicon. It was the first Magicon. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I have an idea. I'll start a Tumblr account. I'm going to see all these different people and stuff. And if you send a text message to that number, it automatically posted it for you. Yeah. It was supposed to be a personal journal. That was it. I was just going to use it to, if I met someone, I want to chat with someone, or hey, do you mind if I record this? So I just want to remember this conversation. Um, I could just use my phone, record it, it would send it, and yeah. then I just had a record of it when I got home. Well, that didn't happen at all because Magicom was incredible and there was just no time. Yeah. I just never found the time to do it. You were constantly doing something cool or cooler than you were just doing. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. So that didn't work, but now I had this blog. I was like, well, let's see what it can do. I just start writing. The funny thing about it was when you write once a week, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Twice a week, even harder. And as soon as you start writing every day of the week, it gets very easy. You're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, but it does. It becomes part of your routine. Yeah. And at the, at the end of it, the real reason why I did the blog was, after I like started to do it consistently, was to become a better writer. Mm-hmm. That was it. I just wanted to be good at writing. Um, and I was, I was okay, but I was very formal. And if yeah. you actually read the very first ones, you'll find that very long sort of essay-based stuff you'd expect yeah, to yeah. see like as a theory piece in like a set of lecture notes uh, or a book. And then as, as it goes on, you see it gets very casual and it changes and it becomes less of a formal academic paper to submit and more of an actual conversation. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it, I was, I was pretty impressed with myself. I mean, it took a while, obviously, posting like every day for years, but time, it flew by. Mm-hmm. It flew by. And I still miss it. I really, really miss writing. But at the peak, when things were going really well, I used to run out of topics to write about. Yeah. So I'd go on Facebook and just look at the messenger thing and just see who was online, pick a random person and go, hi, I'm so sorry to bother you. Can you just give me a random topic? Like, like what? I said, anything. You mm-hmm. can say anything. And one person was like, I don't know, pink. So if you search the blog, there's a post on pink just because I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. How do I relate the color pink to magic? And then yeah. I just kind of ripped out this, this concept. I think it was about like taste and how pink has become sort of a fashionable thing now and the pink shirt and not everyone is interested in these different things, but it's important to recognize that there's a place for everybody and for everything. Um, but I could totally just be lying right now. I haven't read that thing in years. <laughs> um, the other thing that was always funny was people assume the writing style, I think, got so casual, people assumed I was talking to them directly. And people would start conversations with me as if we were in the middle of a blog post. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. They're like, oh, the blog post you posted yesterday. And I don't remember what I wrote yesterday because I wrote it and I had to write something the next day. The, the consistent output is so significant that you forget what you wrote. You're like Jennings. It, yeah, exactly. You forget who to credit. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know. Okay, no problem. Um, what did I write about? And they had to give me a small primer. And then I said, oh, you were talking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And then we could like jump into it. Yeah. But it happened so frequently that I was always sort of scatterbrained about stuff. Yeah. Um, but what it did tell me was it resonated with people. There was one epic post about onions, the onion post. You know, I got Google Analytics. I can see, you know, who's coming in, how many people are visiting. And then I posted this, this thing about cooking with onions and how I just hate onions. And boom, it spiked. I'm like... 
where are these people coming from? I'm looking yeah. at like search words, and it's like it's totally layman. Yeah. So that's the other thing I found was most of the people reading the blog. There's a lot of magicians, and there's a lot of like laymen that were just friends from high school or people I'd met as a one-off one time. They just wanted to keep up with what was going on, um, and I was just shocked. I was shocked. When I kind of posted those things, like, hey, who wants to see the blog come back? It was a lot of people from university that were like, nothing to do with magic. They were like, yeah. I love reading your stuff in the morning. I said, did you understand it? Like, well, not all of it, but I still enjoyed reading it. It was like their daily newspaper. Yeah. So in a way, I kind of I feel a little bit bad. And the other side of it is I want to keep writing. So yeah. I just need to connect the dots and make it happen. Sure. I'll move some domains around and, and get it hosted up differently and do a little bit of a... A little bit of housekeeping with the with the code and stuff. Yeah. But um, but yes, it will come back. It will come back. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Same format, same style. Or, I think so. Or are you going to try something different? I'm going to add new things to it. One thing I do want to introduce is um, I'm, I've been pretty careful about not being on video for, mm. for most of my magic stuff. I try to maintain a bit of, of reclusiveness, I suppose. But um, <laughs> eh, but you know that's so funny. I consider you to be one of the most accessible people. Just, you well, know, like, regards to, like, you know, very that, friendly, but... responsive, and that kind of thing. Like, oh, I'm on top yeah, of it, 100%, yeah. but you don't see a lot of my work. No. That's a thing for a lot of people is they don't see my work, and I don't talk about... I, I try to maintain a, a certain level of respect for, for, my, for my clients, especially, and for my audiences, so... You know, like some people perform for celebrities every once in a while, and they, they just they splash photos of all these things up on Facebook or on socials in general, and I don't. I have a little collection of them, met lots of wonderful people, and some of them are just personal friends, but you will never hear about them mm. because I just I just don't believe in that. I just don't think that's right. Yeah. It doesn't really help anybody. Um, but, but Shane, how will people know how great your life is? Oh my God, how am I supposed to let people know how great Why do you think are? I put on Facebook? I just moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> Look at me, Mom. I made it. Finally made it, Mother. I'm going to be a big star. <laughs> that's not, I'm going to be famous. I got all the right things, Mom. I don't know. I mean, you still. I can still post cool stuff. I'm just. I'm just kidding. I just. Yeah. I, just, I won't post like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, as a as a like an invasion of privacy towards your clients or the people that you perform. Especially. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's huge. Huge. I had a. a I, I'm not, I can't even tell who this is because I need to maintain his exclusivity and share inclusiveness too. He performs for royalty in Europe mm-hmm. on a frequent basis. They love him. He's super vulgar and an inappropriate performer. He has a lot of like double entendres and, and yeah. sexual jokes and things. And he will have you in stitches. Mm-hmm. And he's very famous in the country that he's coming from. But the reason that royalty keeps bringing him back is because of his discretion. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a 24-7 social culture where yeah. everyone wants to tell you how great their life is or how cool they just did something. They want to share the win. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a, a little phrase with a, a couple of friends of mine. My closest friends, have, I have criteria for certain friends. And one of them is you can't shit on the win. Yeah. It's the expression that we use, at least. What that really means is if I have something great going on in my life, and for whatever reason something's not going so well in your life, and I tell you about it, yeah. you can't come back to me and say, yeah, but what if this happens? Or are you sure it's going to work? Or I don't know if that's going to really work out for you. Like, There's always those like, naysayers or like just you know, negative Nancys. They always want to bring it down or tell yeah. you not to do something. Yeah. Um, I cannot have that with my close friends. My, mm-hmm. my close friends, my, my, my suits of coterie. Throw yeah. the Larry Nage reference out there. My exclusive coterie has to be people that will not shit on the win. Mm-hmm. And it goes vice versa. If I have like a really rough year, you never know, and my friend killed it, I'm going to be, you gotta be so supportive. happy for him. Yeah. yeah just, just, just don't you know, project whatever negative stuff you've got in yeah. your life on someone else. And when someone else is winning, win with them. Because yeah. when someone's doing great, there's a lot of people that are going to just be like super envious, super jealous, and that happens a lot. So posting on socials, I think, also invites that kind of animosity and feelings from people. So I try to avoid a lot of it 
Um, but specifically the celebrity sort of stuff, I don't think people need to hear about it. Yeah. And because of that discretion, you become a friend, you become a favorite, you become someone they want to sort of spend time with. And, and it's awesome. We have great times doing stuff. I just don't need to tell everyone about it. Yeah. Who, it's fine. who, who though? Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah, you're asking? You're like, yeah, yeah okay. Well, who is it? But seriously, but who is it? How much money Maybe. do you make? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the girl, I suppose. Oh, <laughs> oh, nice. You set them up. <laughs> Knock them down. Knock them down. Switch games on you. You didn't know we were bowling, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't know you had a bowling alley in here. This is amazing. Dude, it's nice. <laughs> it's it's uh Yeah, no, I totally understand, like, that need for describe. And I, like, I'm not... I post pictures of my coffee. <laughs> you know, like, I, I hang out with some pretty awesome people. And We've got cool friends, man. We've got, We've got we do cool have friends. cool friends. Like, the, like we the have coolest cool friends in the lives. universe sometimes. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And I try not to forget that. So I'll tell you yeah. a couple stories that are kind of neat ones. We've got amazing friends. There is no question. Mm-hmm. And I think we take it for granted sometimes. But I think that's kind of why we're just able to be friends with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, like, you just get to get the, you do super cool things. You meet super amazing people. There's, like, a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. But it's important to just remember that the only reason we can do what we do is because there's a bazillion people out there with nine to five jobs. Yeah. And I never forget that. Yeah. I'm super grateful, respectful. And with that in mind, I have so much respect for my audiences. Like, I, it bothers me to see magicians treat their audiences poorly. Oh, uh, well, me too, but for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes it's ego-driven on their part or they're just trying to, they're trying to feel good about themselves. And some people do it by taking other people down or, or they're also just trying to find their, vo- like their voices and who they are, which totally yeah. makes sense to me. Sure. But uh, I just, I can't get behind that sort of attack on your audience. Yeah. It's just not, it's not my way of going about things. And I, I totally lost my train of thought. It was a good one too. <laughs> I'll get back to it, I'm sure. We'll cut all this part out. You're like, no, we won't. Yeah, leave it all in. <laughs> we leave the mistakes in to show um, how real everything to, is. To make sure everyone knows exactly how this works. Except um, if I say something really stupid. That's definitely coming up. Yes. Um, no, it's just, just being grateful for what we do. We cannot yeah. do what we do unless there's a whole bunch of people that, that like what we do in some way and are working nine to five to make our dream lives sort of possible. So oh. I, I remember I was flying home um, from France. It was a couple years ago. And it just so happened through remarkable circumstances that I was flying first, which is amazing. First class over an ocean is like the best. So from France back to Toronto, and it's sort of weird, like just emotion just overwhelmed me. I just had a moment of like an epiphany moment. I was like, oh my God, you're flying first class over an ocean home after performing card tricks and hanging out with like amazing people. This is your life. And I started to tear up. It was a really, I don't know how to explain it. It was a very weird sensation, but it was really overwhelming. Now, in that moment, I was just so super grateful for the fact that I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I tell you, my guidance counselor definitely messed up. He did not tell us that we could do this, right? He's like, you want to be a garbage man or a police officer? <laughs> I'm like, I'll do both. I'll, I'll moonlight it. But, uh, but yeah, we got the greatest job in the world. Yeah. Or I had a client tell me this. This was like, I love this line. Like, you have the best job in the world. Right up there with astronaut and race car driver. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he's right. Like, he, he nailed it. It's exactly right. Those are the jobs that no one actually gets. And then we get to grow up one day and look back and go, oh my God, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So There's also a lot of people who want to be astronauts and race car, car drivers. drivers and magicians <laughs> who shouldn't be. True. Who, who are bad drivers. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of inappropriate responses to that, but I'm not going to make any of them. I'm just going to let just let that linger. They can fill in themselves. Okay, I agree. Um, <laughs> and in a sad way, unfortunately, not everyone's going to live their dream. Yeah, it's a harsh reality. Mm. 
Um, I think the other thing is that our jobs often look very glamorous on paper. Yeah. And to the to people seeing what you do, it's all glam, you know. But if if you don't, you know, know exactly what people do, or you don't see the other side of it, you don't realize it's like, like sleeping in a different. My biggest pet peeve, the thing I hate about touring, is I don't get to sleep in the same bed twice very often. Mm. I have a hard time just sleeping internationally. Yeah. It's it's really rough. So for me, that's the hardest. So I was working at a casino in Sweden in uh, I think it was this, I think it was November. Yeah, it was November. And it was like three days in this casino. I was in a hotel like right across from it and they're doing construction on the hotel. So my schedule, one, my time is way off, like hours off, of course. And then I've got this this little room, which is what you'd expect on the standard, but they were doing construction on this place and it was too hot in the hotel. So we talked about this when we were like, we're driving over. Yeah. I'm in a perpetual state of overheating. Mm -hmm. So I need to like crack windows and stuff. And it was winter at Sweden, so it was nice and cool. But I finished working, let's say, at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. You come back to the hotel room, and you're wired. So you're up for a couple hours. 5 yeah. o'clock in the morning comes around. Sun starts to come up. I'm like, I should go to bed. But guess when construction starts? 6 a.m. So I didn't sleep for like three days. And I have to do my best job for these guys, for the clients, of course. And I'm just dying. Mm-hmm. But you don't see that part of it. You know, you don't see the tossing and the turning or the being purely exhausted or having to just like run to try and catch a train to get somewhere or the logistics of making stuff work. Yeah. And now to people listening to this, they're kind of like, that's not a big deal. I would totally trade yeah. for that, which I totally get. But, you know, there's there's lots of stuff like that that really hits you hard. Steve Cohen had a similar story where he was uh, performing for Warren Buffett uh, at one of his friend's houses uh, and then like the next night sleeping on a bench at a train station yeah. overnight and being woken up by a police officer with a billy club <laughs> yeah man you know we've we've all got those horror stories yeah. too i mean it's like that's another fun moment right you can always tell like how much well you can't always but it's fun to hear people talk about their experiences and performing because yeah. a lot of people tell like their greatest moments it's like the greatest hits and the best stories are not the greatest hits. They're the, the best bombs. stories are the They're crash the and burns, stories. right? I yeah. want to hear like the worst show you did. Yeah. And you can usually laugh about it now, so it's not like yeah. a sensitive topic. But then there's like the shows that you just can't talk about. You talk about them, but like very, very, very vaguely. Yeah, very reclusively. Yeah. I mean, like I could tell you stories about like performing for the mafia in Toronto that are just mind blowing. Sure. But you can't really talk about those stories. Yeah. Um, not publicly, at least. Um, but yeah, we get to just do like super, super cool stuff. That's yeah. the travel. And that's a big one too. Because we're in like a unique generation. We're kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, just before the millennial group. Um, or like kind of right on the cusp of it. And we can see this new group of millennials sort of coming in. And the lifestyle that people want to live now. Mm-hmm. And the differences in the requirements and kind of um, in, in work requirements. Or like just, just general life requirements. We sort of change the game and what people kind of want in their lives. It's experience commerce. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. It's it's a total game changer right now. Um, and just the, just the way that finance is working right now, just the way money is going to different people and different you know socioeconomic classes and how things are shifting are just changing the spend. But it's also changing lifestyles. Yeah. And most people's dream is to live the lifestyle we kind of live because of the, the glam, because yeah. of the traveling and to, to visit all these different places. And then if they're aspiring magicians, when you travel, you always like, get to hang out with really cool people because people want to hang out with other people. Yeah. Um, just the fact that you're from out of town is really fun, you know? True. Um, yeah, but I find there's, just, there's so many interesting misconceptions about like what it is to kind of do magic or be a magician. and uh, they, I think that was diversity, like how, how you diversify your magic portfolio. So yeah. you're like, what do you do? Oh, I only do children's parties. Well, that's, that's, that's great. You can totally do that. 
But if that's not your cup of tea, and for me, it's really not my world, you know, it's a whole different ball game. You can't put all of your efforts or put your um, your business basically in like in one specific thing. You've got to do a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. And I think you kind of learn that by talking to other guys that have been doing this for many, many, many more years than you. So I think there's also kind of this almost like an unofficial mentoring that goes on, mm-hmm. but no one talks about it. You never hear about it. It's just sort of a go-getter mentality. Like if you go and talk to enough people about it and you're at a level where you can start doing it, people will connect so many dots for you and make it possible sure. for like you and I to kind of, you know, like live this remarkable, magical life. Yeah. But uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world, man. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wouldn't do, it's, it's, everything about it is right to me. Uh, for me. This isn't for sure. everybody. Yeah, but for me not. personally, yeah, yeah. I absolutely adore it. I love it. Do you ever um, get burned out? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I, I try to be... The other thing I try and do is be very diverse in the type of magic that I'm working on. So if I get burned out with close-up magic a little bit, I'll just change my creative efforts to something else. So I never get sort of burned out performing. Um, and that's kind of also where the shifts between performing and lecturing and consulting and things, that whole mix of things... Um, it just, it just, it keeps me on my toes, which is great. And it just keeps me doing lots of different stuff. So it doesn't burn me out. Mm-hmm. There's a psychological uh, phenomenon called the over justification effect. And the way it basically works is as soon as you receive some sort of compensation for something that you inherently, uh, take joy out of doing, you will slowly stop to experience, you'll slowly stop experiencing that joy that just came naturally, and you'll start to do it for the incentive of, let's say, money, for example. So as soon as you start getting paid for something you love, you start to lose the love for it. And um, I was was in uh, university for for psychology and for theater, and the psychology stuff, that really drove home hard to me, that if you do something you love and people pay you for it, the frequency of it and the repetitive nature of it will leave you not loving what you do anymore. Changes your brain chemistry. 100%. So that is just not what I wanted to do. I did not want to fall out of love with magic. So I tried to study so many different areas of it. So whenever I do feel a little bit burnt out in some way, I work on something else. And then on the opposite side of things, I try to, um, I'm always trying to improve myself and I think you should improve yourself in secret. So I don't really, I don't like exercise in public. I don't go to the gym. Um, I'll have like a little gym set up at home. No one needs to see that. Practicing magic and stuff, exact same thing. I don't need to see that. And and the last one is I try to add, um, I guess, like auxiliary skills, secondary skills that could come in and help me out with certain stuff. So like you're doing electronics now. Exactly. So now I'm sort of like playing with like electronics, hardware stuff, and I'm trying to learn how to program, which is really not. It's coming somewhat naturally, but the, there's definitely a steep learning curve for me. Yeah. Um, but the hardware makes sense to me. So like the actual components and building a thing, no problem. But before that, I taught you know, myself, I learned how to do a lot of woodworking when I was in high school and then metalworking when I was in high school. And then, you know, years and years and years later, you know, over 10 years later, I go and buy like metal tools. So I have a metal shop in, in my basement. I've got a wood shop in my basement. Um, so if I get bored with magic or if things are kind of like just, you know, wearing me down and I'm getting yeah. burnt out, I can just jump into something like, oh, let's, let's start a project. Yeah. So I'll tell you the project right now. This is a kind of a cool project. And no one that's going to know about this or that this will impact, I think, will be listening to this. So... My um, my girlfriend's family has these amazing laser tag guns from the 80s. So back in the day, like Hasbro or Tiger Electronics made these one-piece laser tag guns. There's no vest or anything. It's just the gun. There's a little bobble on top, a little um, dome, and that's what you're trying to aim for. And then they can shoot at you. And you just have, you know, the little thing on the side, your team one, your team two, or your solo. Yeah. And if everyone's solo, it works. If you're team one, you can shoot team two. And if you're team two, you can shoot team one. So I was like, okay... Every time there's a family gathering and there's like some sort of event, we play laser tag. And the family loves it because the kids of all ages are playing together. So like the 8 and 10-year-olds are running around outside with the 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. 
up to the 16, 18, 20 year olds, like the, the whole family, all the kids go out and play together. And I guess that's a very rare family thing to happen, but it's so much fun. But we always destroy the kids, you know? We always separate the teams and there's always one team that kind of wins. So I'm like, okay, I want to give these guys an advantage. So I thought, well, there's, they're pretty simple. There's an infrared LED, fine. And there's infrared receivers. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, if I, can, if I can mimic, if I can simulate and reshoot out whatever the infrared LED is doing, I can make extra devices. So I was like, I want to make a little infrared LED grenade. So the kids will have to like flip a switch with their finger and push a button on the side of like a little black box. And I'll cover it with like silicone, like Sugru stuff so that if it hits the ground, it's not going to explode. Yeah. And it's got like IR LEDs around it. So when you push the button and you hold the switch down, it starts to beep, 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 and a light blinks. And then they can throw it. And if you're near it, it'll just shoot out like eight different pulses of as if a gunshot went off. Yeah. So I want to give these kids like a crazy cool advantage. So that's what I'm working on now is the, the hardware is easy. The hardware is all ready to go. Now it's just like coding it properly. Yeah. And then what they don't know is there's also something I'm building into it called mom mode. That's what I'm calling it. Mom mode is if mom has this and it's time for dinner, um, I'm putting a, a read switch or a hole sensor. So that's just like a, it's like a switch, but you put a magnet near it and it turns it on or off. Yeah. So read switches are usually glass, which is very fragile. So a hall sensor is just like a digital version of it. So I'm going to put that inside there. So if you take a magnet and stick it on the side, it'll stick. And if you hold it up in the air and hit the button, it's just a kill shot. It's just an EMP, basically. Everyone dies. That's, that's <laughs> what I want it to be. So if mom's like, hey, guys, we're coming in. She just comes out, holds it up, pushes the button, and just sort of aims around. And everyone just die. So that's, that's pretty cool. So that's a little project you know, for fun that I'm doing right now. But uh, yeah, to not get burnt out, keep yourself doing lots of stuff that's outside of your world. Um, and like I said about, I made a little Facebook post about talking to experts and stuff. It's so, to me, so important to have people that are better than you at so many things um, because you can always teach each other stuff. Yeah. And like I've got friends that are incredible programmers or engineers or, you know, you name it. There's like someone that does something extraordinarily well. And those guys change everything about what I do. So I've, I, I can't talk about the project too much, but there's one project right now where I'm talking to the guy and he's like, he is the best in the world at this particular thing. And we're trying to reinvent a trick from like the 1860s, 1870s. Um, yeah, and make it just a little bit more modern, contemporary, make it look a little bit better and, uh, and hopefully have it be so visually stunning that people are like, what is that? And when you tell them what it's based off of, they go, are you kidding me? Okay. You know, I want that to happen. So yeah. I'm trying to find like experts that are really outside of our field to bring in and work on really, really old stuff that we've almost discarded as magicians. Yeah. And just, just breathe new life into it. That's exciting. Yeah. So there's always, there's always new fun stuff that's, you know, coming about. But, uh, yeah. Kind of also throws us back to the history of magic. Yeah. What is your interest in history? Like, why... <sighs> why the old stuff? Not why the old stuff. You can't see this right now, but Elliot's like holding his eyes. <laughs> yeah, not why the old. I guess uh, so. For me, I always wanted to be very knowledgeable about what I was doing, so that I wouldn't be dismissed, so that I felt like I belonged. Right. Okay, I see what you mean. So is it not that way for you? Not you at all. Be... Okay, I'll tell you exactly why. Yeah. Okay. We take a lot of things for granted today, like we have computers and I don't know electricity. Yeah. If we go back far enough, that wasn't a thing. People didn't have the stuff that we have today. So depending on which era you kind of concentrate on, you can see certain revolutions in technology and just in like the way of life. So if you go back to the 1800s, do you know how hard they had to work to make a thing? Mm. Like automatons were kind of in play at that point. Yeah. You had to actually know how to make stuff. That yeah. was a time when you had to be masterful. Like for me, Tommy Wonder was 
I would argue, one of the last great magicians. And I would say that with a, take that with a giant pinch of salt, mind you. But what I mean by that is he was one of the few people that had the skill set to conceptualize something mechanically, put it on paper or on a computer, depending on how he was working, and then actually produce the physical thing. And he would go to any length to accomplish it. If we go back to the Victorian times, you find some of the most incredible magic and no one knows it exists. So why do I love the old stuff? I fell in love with a lot of the stories, but when you hear like Houdin's orange tree, for example, even the story about it, forget whether certain stuff is true about you know, his life and whether the memoirs were all authentic or correct. Let's pretend it's all real. Just the story of the orange tree and you know, borrowing a ring or a handkerchief and having it vanish and the butterflies flying. That image in my head was just so powerful and then we flash forward to today, and we all run around with a deck of cards doing magic, mm. which is cool. It's yeah. more, pra it's more um, practical for us. It's more available to us. But I, I just I can't discard what they were willing to go through. Yeah. And if you really want to go back and get like a real amazing look at some stuff, go back and read um, New Era Card Tricks, 1898, Augustus Rodenberg, New Era Card Tricks. And you will see some of the most incredible mechanical playing cards and how he made them. Mm -hmm. You know, like... It would be like a queen, for example, but if you turned it, the card upside down, like a one-way sort of principle, as it turns over, a slot falls down, and it comes and it turns into a king. Yeah. Like, the whole card changes just by turning it over, and it was all a mechanical, moving thing. So, if you go back to those times, you can sort of pick the eras where they had that predominantly. So, I try to cherry-pick eras for stuff like that. So, if you want to learn about the double lift and a lot of stuff with that kind of handling of stuff, go to the 1930s, New York, Vernon. I mean, that stuff was going on in those places. That's when it was sexy. Exactly. That's when it was. It became popular. So Richard Neff published whatever back in the day to turn two cards over artfully. That was, the, I believe, the first instance of it. And then Vernon is just like plowing it hard. He was just, that's the move. He was putting all his attention into it. So who else is around Vernon? Well, there's Doc Daly. So Daly's working on it and Browie's involved in stuff in certain ways. And people start hearing about it. And then you start to just have this explosion of information about a move around a time. Yeah. I would, this would take ages for me unless some really clever programmer is listening and wants to create some sort of amazing venn diagram but uh, it would be neat to take like a, to take uh, just just a timeline of years and have the various moves re uh, represented yeah. okay so double lift whatever year it was 18 something richard nev boom here it is and then to see when the double lift gets popular and just have a giant blip on that timeline so you can go oh wow this is the time that it spanned and it was a huge influence. So you can start finding moves and where they were and when they were popular. Um, but the other reason is Erdnays, man. Erdnays had a huge impact on me. Huge impact. Um, I try to maintain a certain philosophy about older magicians. And my preference for old magic is I want, if the magician's still alive, I'm kind of not interested in their work. And it's not to be disrespectful to someone. I think they're doing brilliant work. I just don't think they're done with it yet. Mm -hmm. I want stuff that someone had worked on and either left incomplete or completed. And they're like, this was my best efforts. It's out there in the world. Do as you will. And the reason I like to have magicians that aren't with me anymore is because I don't want to be uh, let down if I see something. In my head, every magician from the past, in my head, I picture them as the greatest magician in the world. Yeah. So if I'm studying, like, I don't know, that's Charlie so Miller. That's so funny that you say that. Oh, why uh, that? I'm going to write it down, but so keep going with your story and I'll tell you why. In so second. when I think back to like an old trick, if I read some old trick, in my head I'm like, this must have been incredible. Okay, I have to assume that this was great. I always assume that these old guys were right. And I find that what that often does for me is like reading Erdnays, I really try not to differentiate or deviate from the book. I try to, I try to stay really inside what, what he was doing. Is this what was published? Um, the one, I think the one little deviation is 
There's the open shift and there's a diagonal palm shift. Mm-hmm. I forget which one. I think it's the diagonal palm shift, says this in the description. But anyways, Erdnaz is a funny book. If you don't read the whole description, you usually miss out on a lot. And most Erdnaz fans don't read to the end because most magic books, you don't have to read to the end. You yeah. read until you get it. Yeah. And then you leave like the last paragraph. You're like, next thing, it's not my cup of tea. Or, oh no, I got this. And you just, because you want to practice. We want to get our hands involved. We're just, yeah. we're very hands-on sort of technicians. With Erdnaz, you need to read to the very, very end of it. And in one of those two descriptions, he goes, oh, by the way, this can also be done with the deck being flat in the hand in like a mm-hmm. dealing position. Yeah. Well, that's a completely different position than what people are normally doing with, let's say, the DPS, for example, where mm-hmm. it's, it's, as published, it's up at the fingertips. And if you move it down, it changes the technique significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, oh, well, that's not an Erdnaz. Or the statement usually is, that's not an Erdnaz. And you go, yeah. read it again and read it to the end. Yeah. And it's full. The book is full of these. I call them keys. It's full of these little keys to these different moves. Mm-hmm. Another great one is um, there's a false cut in Erdnaz, which is neat, where he does like the slip cut. And if you see someone who didn't read the description, they only looked at the picture. Mm-hmm. And you see people like, I've got both my hands up in the air. You see like the left hand slapping straight down. Yeah. First finger touching the top card, so it slaps down with it. And then the right hand comes up in a big exaggerated action and slap, brings the top packet down. And they're like, that's the Erdnase false cut. I'm like, no, not even close. But if you take that technique, that idea of the top card slipping with the packet, then you have to read the second bold and barefaced blind cut that Erdnase publishes, which is just him stripping out the bottom and putting the top back on top. You need to read the very last sentence of that, or the last couple sentences. And he explains, he gives you one line, the movement towards the dealer is what makes this move deceptive. I'm paraphrasing, but in general, that's what he's saying. The movement towards the dealer is what makes this you know, possible or deceptive. Well, what that means is you can't slap it down on the table and bring the other packet down. Yeah. He just told us what makes it deceptive. Mm-hmm. But no one reads that far. No one read that last little thing. So to me, that's like a little key in Erdnaz. Yeah. So how does it work? Well, if you now do the move according to what Erdnaz says, with that in mind, you have to be in transit. You have to move from one position either forward or away from yourself with the cards for the cut. It makes it night and day difference. It, it, it's truly a, a beautiful, beautiful false cut. Even the bold bare face, just the bottom packet coming out, top packet going back on top. But uh, yeah, just read to the end. Read to the end. Yeah. But again, I always assume, whether it's true or not, that Erdnaz could do everything in the book flawlessly. Yeah. So when people start to vary stuff in the book or they have like adaptations of the technique, it's okay, it's fine. I just don't choose that. I don't think you should start altering a technique until you can do it masterfully enough to recognize perhaps there's fault. Um, I haven't. I don't think there's a need to alter very much in Erdnaz. Uh, I think that's a very misunderstood book. A lot of it I think is misunderstood. And I think it's misunderstood for one reason. The best thing I think you can give someone with Erdnaz is perspective. Uh, and there's a lot of things in Erdnaz where if someone just tells you, I'll read this in a different way, mm-hmm. it's a completely different book. Absolutely completely different book. Yeah. Any favorite any favorite parts from the book? Yeah, it's a fascinating book. I remember talking to Jason England about it in a previous episode, and he's like, you know the, the Euchre stack in there? And I was like, nope. And he's like, yeah, most people don't. Most people haven't read the book. And I'm like, God damn it, you're right. <laughs> What's funny about that? I cherry pick everything. When I know? was in university, me and my best friend, and I've known him since I was like five years old, okay? So we, we, we've we been tight. We still are. Actually, I think his wife is like super pregnant right now. The, the baby was supposed to be due a few days ago and then I like flew tough. out. I know. I need to get in touch and find out if, uh, if they had one yet. Yeah. Um, but anyways, we actually learned the Euchre Sacks because in Canada, Euchre is a popular game. Yeah. So we played all the time. Every time, like at, at lunchtime in high school, people would sit around and play, like, play Euchre. Or if we ever go to like a cottage or a cabin or something up somewhere, that was like, that's our kind of go-to game is you play Euchre. 
And in university, there was something called the off-campus university students, and they had a lounge in the basement of the university center. Mm-hmm. So we used to play euchre down there all the time. And Tim and I, I'm, a whole bunch of my friends from university are going to hear this now and be like, you, you were cheap. <laughs> but in all fairness, this is actually a neat story. So the very first day I go down there, and I'm just scoping this place out. We're just like hanging out. Yeah. I'm going down there, and my friend's in class, and he's like, hey, where are you? And I'm like, oh, come downstairs. There's this really neat lounge where people are just hanging out, like playing cards and like video games and things. Yeah. We had a big screen TV down there. It was, it was awesome. It was really awesome. It was almost like a really uh, a, a better lit, larger... Remember that 70s show? We yeah. went down to the basement yeah, and like yeah. the old couch and stuff. That's what it was like. There was a bunch of old couches around. And then we had, you know, there was a fridge and yeah, it was great. In the corner, there was like one table and you'd sit around playing cards nonstop. Always cool. euchre. And one person uh, told me, they go, hey, there's a guy that actually cheats here. I'm like, really? Now I'm so fascinated. I'm yeah, like, oh man, gotta, I got to see this him. guy. So I'm like, oh, who is it? I, have to, I can't be too in. I can't be like, really, what's his name? Can I meet him? Yeah. I got to be like casual and cool about it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, you know, every once in a while, I guess, some people like to like to get a bit more of an advantage. But to me, as soon as, soon as someone's cheating at cards, that's shots fired. I'm like, yeah. well, if you're going to, if you want to cheat at cards, I, I hope you're good. He was bottom dealing. Yeah. He was bottom dealing. Was he good? No, he wasn't very good. He's not. Uh, which is why other people knew that he was cheating at cards. But yeah. everyone's just like, it's fine. <laughs> we just, just dismiss it. So he would deal off the bottom of the deck. And I was, I heard that. Someone said, oh, he deals off the bottom of the deck. You know, just be careful. They're watching for that. And I just so wanted to see it happen. Yeah. And then we're playing cards and I'm watching and he's dealing. And it's like the roughest, harshest thing. Yeah. And it was a really interesting lesson in that moment to be like, you don't have to be that good to get away with it for some people. He was just casual about it. You know, so no one was really looking at it, and it was—it yeah. wasn't like it was like any great technique. There's yeah. like you know, going to a straddle grip and barely yeah, touching. He's just reaching under. He's just reaching under and dealing with the, yeah, bottom of the deck. Yeah. So, I remember seeing this, and I'd, I'd gone through word names. Remember the euchre stack? So I told my buddy, I'm like, hey, let's go hustle some people at euchre. We never did it really for money so much, but um, no, that's the only fun way to cheat. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so we went back. We actually took the ordinary stacks um, for euchre, and we used them. And then for a while, we are like, this is good, but we can stack one more. So we started to alter them. So there's a bunch of modified Erdnade stacks or Euchre stacks that we have written down in some book somewhere. Nothing crazy. You know, it got like, like one extra card or it sort of doubled down. So you both got good cards. It wasn't just like one person had three and the other team like had one. Yeah. Um, it like divided the, the trump uh, evenly. It controlled which card got turned up, of course. Um, and the neat thing about Euchre is the card that gets turned up... Okay, if, if anyone doesn't know how Euchre kind of works, I don't four know, people no, are I don't playing. Play. Oh, you play with partners, and there's four people playing, and you're trying to get to 10 points. Um, and if you win and you take, you know, they're, talk, they're called tricks, you take a bunch of cards out, you don't use the whole deck. Um, what is it? It's nines and up. Is, is it nines and ups? Nines and up, sure. you use, I believe. Right. And uh, as you're going around, you decide what the suit, the strongest suit's going to be, and that's the trump suit. So whichever that last card is, after you deal hands out to everybody, there's four cards left in the deck, you turn that last card face up onto the bottom three. And that card goes around. Each person can choose whether or not they want the dealer to pick up that card. But if they do pick it up, that's the suit that becomes the powerful suit. That's the trump suit. So what we discovered, of course, was the card that gets turned up is also the card right before the last card dealt to the dealer. Mm-hmm. Now, the one little catch with this is the person to the dealer's left gets first choice. It's called ordering up. So you can say, pick it up. And if you do, you have to pick up the card and play with that. You discard a card from your hand, um, and then you play the round. Yeah. But they know the dealer has one. So they can just go, oh, no, pass. And then it goes to your partner who sits across from you. Your partner can say, pick it up. But that's also called ordering up You know your partner. Yeah. When you do that, that means you're going alone. So you have to fight and try and get all the points. Okay. 
I think there's like five tricks in total. Five cards go down, five cards in each hand. And if you get the majority of them, you get one point. If you ordered me up, okay, so whichever team calls the suit, if the other team like faults them and wins, they get two points. If you call the suit and you win, you get one point. If you call the suit as a team and win and get all the points, yeah. or all the tricks, you get two points. And if you go alone and get all of them, you get four. So the 10-point game, it can shift very, very significantly and very quickly. So we discovered with the Euchre stacks that if we stacked it just right, and because the, the three cards are face down, one card is face up, the card just before that face up card ends up in my hand, in the dealer's hand, right? Yeah. The last card before turning up is the dealer's card. So you can not, well, you can cheat. You know what those two cards are, and it's super easy to stack that if you wanted to. So mm -hmm. if I'm remembering this correctly, I think what we did was we had the cards we wanted on the bottom of the deck, during the shuffle, we would control like the cards so that the first few cards would go back and forth. So we each got one. I think it, in total it stacked four cards. I think that's right. My partner got a card. I got a card. My partner got one. And then I think I got the fourth card and the card turned up. So we had such a strong hand whenever we wanted to. And it was just gathering the cards. It was just like a rosette approach to things. You gather sure. the cards face up. You're trying to square the deck and you're sort of moving a few cards as you do. So what we changed was we had to stack a couple cards on top and a few on the bottom, and then just the shuffling sequence, put it so that whatever two cards, here's an easy way to cheat, put two cards you want on top of the deck, and just shuffle off five. One, two, three, four, five. No, I'm mixing this up. There's a bunch of stuff. But anyways, the so two cards you want on top of the deck, yeah. shuffle off two, I'm sorry, and then shuffle off three. That's what it was. Shuffle off two, pick up, shuffle off three, and square them up. And that will put the two cards you want and the three cards that are going to be the cards that you don't see, the pack cards down. So when they start you know, dealing hands, super fair, because it's clean, now you've controlled the card that's going to turn up and the card that you've got yeah. with zero skill. So yeah. we took that kind of idea and we just uh, altered the Euchre stack so that we were stacking cards back and forth like, like crazy. But I've also heard that before where no one reads the, the Euchre stacking section, unless yeah. you're Canadian, which case everyone... Or from Michigan. Or from Michigan, yeah. <laughs> then everyone reads the, the Euchre stacking section. Yeah. The only section in Erdnay is that I've never really, like, it's never clicked with me. And I'm still trying, but it just it's not naturally coming to me, and I, I can't quite figure out a, a beautifully finessed way to do something. My fingers can't quite get it. Um, I, I just don't understand it well enough yet. It's the culling and stalking section for the individual cards, when he's sort of like riffling through, catching one, and trying to like in-jog it yeah. as he's sort of fiddling with the deck. Yeah. I've never seen anyone make that look good. Maybe the, it looked so good I didn't see it. Or, um, and I can't picture it looking great. Yeah. Um, if I can't picture something looking great, like if I don't have a mental movie in my head of what it would look like flawlessly, yeah. it's very hard for me to try to make it look like that. Um, yeah. So that that's one thing in the book that just it, it intimidates the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> you can see my mouth kind of assuming yeah. a bunch of different words. Yeah. Uh, Garrett Thomas said something really interesting, I think on the podcast maybe, about, uh, or maybe in a lecture or something, but about the French drop and how like all the uh, the... Uh, illustrations of it are like this the thumb through action the stuff. thumb through yeah and he's like why why is all why are all the illustrations like that and he's like i think it's because you were doing it for a larger group of people and you were showing the coin like this and proving to all the people you were going to take it that's interesting yeah so it's like it's supposed it's not like uh right here in front of you let me do it like this you would never do a vantage it was that much way more for one it was person. it's for a huge group of people look at this oh, there it is you know it's like let me do this out in the open so everybody can which see. makes more sense it does it does I, make more sense and so that's like that to me is what i think of when you say i don't have the movie in my head of what it's supposed to look like it's yeah like i had context never is important too exactly i'd never understood so, i'd never thought of the french drop in that way 
It's being done above your head. I don't think this is the oldest reference, but it's certainly an old one to it. Is Reginald Scott's um, Discovery of Witchcraft. Yeah. Call it, what is it, like, Let's Win a Cat? Mm-hmm. And that's, like, the French drop. That's the whole thing in there. But um, I think when people... It's easy to read a book in isolation. Mm-hmm. Like, to not say, okay, well, what year was this? 1584. Well, if he's publishing it, that means he knew about it before then. So you can sort of give yourself a bit of wiggle room. I with... think Letourneau was first published in late 1800s. First mention of it. As Discovery Le- has Le-Turnicat. it, though. 1584. Not as Letourneau. And Nouvelle... Blanche Magie, they're like white, uh, there's new white magic basically. Yeah. Which is, a, again, a really, really old book. But a quick Google will pull it up, I'm sure, right? Actually, there's a good plug. Dennis Bear has the whole like archives, and I think Bill Kalush is working on like the origins of certain common popular moves. Yeah. So you can go and you can search for something like the double lift or yeah. the French drop, and it'll give you like a great, as early references they were able to find. Yeah. So I'm sure it's on there, but yeah. you and it's I are here without it. I, I'm telling you, it's bo- it's before late 1800s. Do you want to look it up on Conjuring Archive right now? Sure, I'm sure. Go for it. I promise you, it's before the late 1800s. I'm not saying it's it wasn't published then. I'm saying on as Le Tourniquet. Yeah, on as Le Tourniquet, it's okay. 18, go for it. Take take 1850 deep. something. I think you're gonna have like a bunch of outraged French magicians after this. I'm sure. Yeah, they're like we're not pronouncing it correctly. We don't know what we're talking about. So the internet's an amazing thing because we can do stuff like this. Yep. 1876, Modern Magic. That's only what he has in his exactly, collection. Exactly, that's what I just said. Okay. Look up Discovery of Witchcraft, French Drop. Or even Google French Drop Origin. It, it predates that. Okay. This is super interesting to everyone. I know. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's fascinated by this. Okay. French Drop, Wikipedia. I'm sure that's super. <laughs> How could that not be the official one? The second one's a bit better than Magicpedia. Yeah. Uh, Fritz Magicpedia, often attributed as being first described in 1584, Scott's describes a coin vanish in which you retain the coin in the palm as you seem to drop it in the other hand. As you seem to drop it in the other hand, which is more a false load than it is technically. And it's other more, publications? It's more a transfer. Let's turn again. Let's go. Who did Eighteen sixty eight. Which is still late. I still have a hard time believing that that's the first instance of it. The French the French literature has it way before that. It has to. Oh sure. It has to. There's no way that that came out in the late eighteen hundreds, especially because Scots is so similar to it. Mm-hmm. The idea of taking it apparently and having it fall into it. But it also has a good image of the of the coin ready to drop. Yeah. Which is another point, right? How do you do a French drop? How do you hold the coin to get in there? Mm-hmm. But uh this is another reason why I love the history of magic, because you can have these discussions, yeah. and someone's going to be right and someone's going to be wrong, but it also puts you on a chase. And most people don't care. <laughs> most people don't care. But for those that do, it's, yeah. um, it's fun. It, to me, this is a fun okay. journey. So now, I'm going to start running around and trying to find it, right? That's the next step. Like, okay, Elliot, if this is, this is now the thing, I'm going to go start hunting for it, and I'll go, here you go, here's your reference. Yeah. Um, the French drop, as we understand it, was first published. Right, as we commonly know, a French drop. Yeah. As far as we know, so far we've got through uh, through Houdin in the 1860s, as you as you pulled up. Yeah. Well, but Modern again, Magic I, in 1870 something was the first one on Dennis Bear's website. Um. Well, you just said Houdin, Secrets of 1868. That was yeah, but that was on Magicpedia, not Dennis Bear's website. Oh, okay. So if we're using Dennis as the the absolute that that is the one site we can use. <laughs> um, That's another thing that frustrates me is that. The history, uh, okay, people really give a shit about the first time something was done. Yeah. 
And I get it. <laughs> but also, stop. <laughs> like, I understand its place. Crediting is a sensitive topic for I a lot of I understand its people. place. I totally understand it as like a history appreciation and, and getting everything right. But well, practically... It's not terribly practical. I know what you mean. I mean, you kind of yeah. have to look at it at, at two ways. One is people want to do their best to give credit where credit is due. But we're also not academic in the same way that someone writing an academic paper is required to research. Yeah. In other words, we don't really... That's sort of more of a, a newer approach to magic is to give such extensive details in the crediting. And we're kind of... I don't know if it's to kind of garner respect for what we do or for what we write. But if we had been doing this all along... This would not be a discussion we'd be having. We would just know this was what we do. This is yeah. just commonplace. You have to credit stuff. But that being said, if we had a significant precedent and there was remarkable pedigrees published in the work that we read, it's much easier to find all that stuff because we know where it is. So yeah. we're actually kind of playing this remarkable game of catch-up, of trying to find all these early places. And I think some people get a little bit sidetracked with it. And they kind of their their hearts in the right place, yeah. but perhaps their intent. The purpose of it is yeah. Right. The the reasoning for it is kind of a little bit off. Now that being said, I think we should still be searching for the earliest reference to it, but we should all calm down a little bit about it. I don't think yes. everyone needs to be an expert in crediting stuff. Yeah. But if you're not, I think everyone kind of knows someone who is good at that. If I don't have a reference for something, which happens all the time, I have friends and people I can reach out to. Just be respectful, be courteous, be very grateful and thankful. I'm so sorry. I'm working on this particular thing. This is the earliest reference I've found for this. Or, I'm not very good at crediting. I would like to be better at it. I don't really know where to start. And I'd like to credit this. And yeah. as long as you approach it that way, the people that really are trying to find really early stuff um, are happy to help you. They're going to be more receptive to it. 100%. Right? And then give them credit. That's, that's show, exactly. <laughs> and that's showing them appreciation for all the hard work they're doing. Exactly. Which is, there's I think, certain, really what it's all about. Yeah. I think there's a certain... I think magic is, is, is a lot of... It's, there's a lot of respect required in magic. Um, Ass-kissing. <laughs> somewhat. Yeah, sometimes. For some people it is. Sure, but sure, I mean, sure. just, just respecting the fact that we're doing magic, you know? Yeah, Because no, it is totally. such an easy thing to make fun of. No, absolutely. Um, I'm just feeling salty. <laughs> I love You're magic. Randy I, I love magic. Magicians. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's. I think that's, that's a very broad statement. But I think we would all agree there's certain magicians that we don't get along with. And sure. that's totally fine. That's in any walk I get life. along with everybody. Except for... <laughs> 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 Just had to throw it out there. No, but no I think yeah. it, it shows respect. It shows respect towards the other. I think what's interesting is that um, the young guys that really choose to credit hardcore get a lot of respect from the older guys. Absolutely. It really is one of those sorts of situations where there's so many generations, and how do you cross those boundaries? Right? That comes back to what I asked you earlier when we got into the history. Well, that's why I wanted to be knowledgeable. Street cred and respect. The street cred. Yeah. yeah. Um, this kid. But I would say this, okay? Yeah. Okay, so that's true. You can get street cred with it. Yeah. But there's also, you need to remember that there's this. It's like having a treasure map, mm -hmm. okay? And if you know where treasure's buried, like I said, the double lift, you want to find cool stuff, 1930s, you'll find remote, like that's when stuff sort of exploded with it, yeah. I, I would say. Others may disagree and change the year, but generally speaking for me, New York in the 30s, 40s-ish, that was- That's where the interesting stuff's going on. That's where the double lift was really exploding. That's where you could see like the seed of it going and you can, start, like, you can see Vernon's influence as he travels around and you just need to find out who was around him. And they all had incredible work. Okay, so let's go back earlier than that though. If yeah. you hit the 1800s, like, here's a hot tip for everybody. Go to, here's a plug for, for uh, the Conjuring Arts Research Center. I have no affiliation with them. I make no money from them. I'm just a really big fan of what they're doing. If you go to the Conjuring Arts Research Center, they have Mahatma Magazine as a digital download or as a DVD you can it buy. It is gigantic. It is like incredible. It is huge. Yeah. But it's all from like the late 1800s. Yeah. And it goes into like the really early 1900s. Yeah. 
what we don't realize is the people writing for this magazine back in the day were the greatest magicians of the time, okay? The news was like, Harry Keller built a house. Here's the floor plan. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Our magic magazines aren't like that anymore, you know? Yeah. Here's Billy Robinson. William Robinson Chungling Su is writing an article every month in Mahatma. Dr. Elliot is writing an article. And if you want to read the best, like, shit talk in magic, go read Dr. James Elliot. Everything he talks about with card work because he has so much arrogance and confidence in what he's doing. And again, I shouldn't say arrogance. He has so much confidence in what he's doing. And as we know from other people ascribing it, it's very easy to, um, to mistake confidence and arrogance. And it's often easy to attribute it because it, someone rubs you the wrong way. But it's also easy to disregard passion. No one writes that boldly without a lot of passion. Yeah. And he threw out challenges to people that were like, you're not going to see it happen today, you know? He's like, I am the greatest card man in the world. And if anyone wants to come and prove me wrong, I got $1,000 or whatever, $100 waiting for you. Yeah. He had like exorbitant amounts of money for it too. But man, he had an article writing this all the time. And then he would write about it, write about it, write about it. And then he would critique other people's card work that was submitted in the same magazine. So he'd be like, last month someone published this thing. And he critiqued my original. Let me tell you why he's wrong and why mine is far superior. And you're like, dude... I would love to see that happen today. Like a proper throwdown technically between people. We don't have rivalries like that in magic unless it's for like crediting actually or people sort of like stealing material. But back in the day though, man, Elliot was talking some serious big game and you had to like live up to it. Mm -hmm. So Mahatma had stuff like that in it. So if you, if you want the greatest magazine and it'll blow your mind what's in there, it's a little bit older so some of it may be hard to read. But the stuff that's in there, no one knows exists. You think no one reads Erdnays? Nobody reads Mahatma. Yeah. Maybe someone like looks for the pictures, like you know, steals a bit of clip art for it. But Mahatma will blow your mind. Um, same with Huger's. The old periodicals are fantastic. Huger's was more like 40s, 50s. But Huger's Magic Monthly has effects in there that are mind-blowing. I had an argument with someone before about crediting, funny enough. And I have a problem with this approach to it. So someone said to me, um, oh yeah, this guy... It was, a, it was a trick. You'll know what the trick is, of course. And this isn't a shot of the person that, that released this stuff. I mean, he was totally right to do it. He didn't know the credit, I presume. Um, <laughs> Just, but no, it was it the trick where you, like, you scratch on your arm kind of thing. And okay. then you can rub it and it turns red. Sure. Okay, that goes way, way back. And a friend of mine and I had this discussion. And he said, well, if, if you don't have an earlier credit, it's original to him. And I said, no, it's not. I said, you can't make that assumption. Yeah. You can't say it's original. Assuming that you're in the right, I think, is the wrong approach. I always assume I'm in the wrong for crediting. So I agree I with find you. something better. Yeah. And I said, there is a 0% chance that that's invented by this guy. Yeah. And that's not a shot at him. It's just, the, the it's too simplistic. It's, exactly. And it's too old. It's just like, it's too possible to happen previously. So I found You it. don't need modern technology to do that. Exactly. It's but, old. But then you have to go back and go, okay, someone's worked in the bush. They scratch, uh, scratch their arm on like, you know, some brush. It happens. Yeah. It goes all red. They rub it. And it just shows up really like, we all have that happen. You've you know? done it. You did it as a kid in elementary school. Yeah, to exactly. Freak out your exactly. So it, it's a thing. But where was it first published? Where was it first used as a deceptive practice? Who gives a shit? Easy to say that. Yeah. But in modern times, the question is, did they do enough research to find anything? Because the other thing is, are we sure he's doing it the best way? Yeah. What I find is our methods are usually far superior in the old, old, old school way. If you go way, way back when, they had to be super practical. The other thing we forget is quality of playing cards. Mm. The quality of cards changed significantly, which means that as we go on through the generations, techniques we can do today would have been nightmare techniques to do way back in the day. Yeah. We just, you know, the invention of basically like plastic coated finishes and things. We yeah. just revolutionized playing cards. 
And you see things like the grips change from like a full grip to like a dealer's grip with the first finger curl over the front. All these little changes in, in technique and, and technology really yeah. um, change how we handle stuff. But I did, so my friend's argument was, if you don't have a, an earlier credit, then it's original to him. And I said, well, that's, that's crazy. That means that anything you don't know, you just assume belongs to this person. Yeah. You can't Which do Which I hate. I'm with you on that. Yeah. That's, that's nuts to me. Yeah. Do a bit of research. And you kind of know where it is. Once you, when you read a lot of different magic books, you start to get a bit of like a... You sort of feel where something is It's almost a sixth sense. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, you like double lift stuff. Well, Vernon was in New York and he was doing double lift stuff hard. He fooled Houdini with it. That's, that, that's the time, man. That's when this stuff was really rich. Yeah. So look around that time period. You'll find really cool stuff. Yeah. So where was it? Huger's Magic Monthly for like a mentalism effect. It's in there. It wasn't described using like a playing card on the arm. It was described with like a number, I think it was. Yeah. I, I think that number was like 54. Now that I'm thinking about it, I kind of remember the page and I can see it in Huger's. But, um, but in Huger's Magic Monthly, that little scratch revelation is in there. And I think even in there, he goes, this is the old thing. So we know it predates that person as well. Do we need this stuff? No. But it would be nice to have it if someone releases something. Oh, by the way, there's also more work here, 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 here. That's the only, for me personally, that's why crediting should happen well we're in a weird time period too right now no i and i agree that you know it's it's good to collate that for historical purposes we need the reference yeah and but even the point of doing that like history for the sake of history is irrelevant you have to have history for the sake of learning from it so having the credits as a means of going this is where you go if you're interested in this to learn more about it and think of other ways to do it and see other you know the other thing is if we don't credit new audiences miss out on really great stuff yeah. And like, so here's a dirty little secret amongst a lot of really wonderful magicians. Charles Jordan. Just look up Charles Jordan, find out information on him if you can, and try and find the material. Because what he did was just brilliant, brilliant stuff. And in Jordan's work, I'm not going to say too much about it. Jordan's like a best kept secret of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If you go like research Charles Jordan material and find tricks and stuff that he did, you're going to be like, oh, this isn't really that impressive. That's not that cool. But the principles that he had in, in like entwined in his magic are incredible. And lots of people are obsessed with trying to find it because he was so reclusive. And mm-hmm. his window of like, I think he was only around really putting magic out. I could be off in these dates, but from roughly like 1910 to 1919 was sort of his window. And I think he went off to get into like radio sales or something. And that didn't work out You so know, well something lucrative. <laughs> yeah, right? Something with money involved. Um, <laughs> but I think now we're in a really weird spot in magic because magic's become so commercialized in the last like 10 years. It's all about selling any, any idea mm-hmm. online through a company, which is okay. Uh, in ways, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Sure. The negative side of it, I think, is when we don't have credit for stuff, um, or actually, I'd say, I'd say this, magic's devolved, where if anyone has a variant on anything, they think it's original to them and they can just release it. Yeah. Even if it's worse than the best thing out. So I kind of equate it to like the magic world shifted from Vernon to Marlowe, where Marlowe published every single version, variant, slight touch or change to one move, and would release like a lot of info on one thing. Sometimes little tiny changes, but he released everything. And in general, in my opinion, Vernon sort of, I think, released what he believed was the best version of a thing at that time. And he may work on it more and release the best version of it. He didn't do it exhaustively. He did it selectively. He was his own quality control filter. Where Marlowe was like, here it is, here's all of it. But the breadth of work was incredible. The cool thing about Marlowe is you can almost, I mean, it's not chronological, but you can almost track how he was evolving with the move. It's neat to watch. Mm. Unfortunately, today, we have people going back and taking some tricks from people still alive or not, doing a version that they discarded, like Vernon would have discarded a bunch of methods, publishing an inferior method, releasing it, and slapping their name on it. Yeah. 
That's my problem with it. So for me, I think crediting is super important for that reason, but also to give you an idea of where other work is. Because if you're really interested in something and something really like just tickles you the right way, you want to find out more. I like being able to look at that and go, ah, here's where I can find out more about this particular thing. Yeah. Um, and again, that's also kind of going like a more academic approach to stuff. But yeah. again, if we did that to begin with way back in like the 1800s, we wouldn't be having this chat. It totally. would just be commonplace and it would all be there, which would make research super easy. Well, that also goes back to magic being such a secretive thing is you didn't want people to know where they could find your well, I love the fact that there was a time when you had to know someone and information was transferred one person to another, you know? Uh, recently, a friend of mine... That's interesting and very romantic, but fuck that. <laughs> oh, it's extraordinarily difficult. Can you imagine that today? The only way to learn? No, like, you had to awesome. work for it. No, you could totally. not just like wake up one day and be like, I'm going to go learn some magic today. Like There was so many things like in your way. Yeah. And plus, you know, magic literature exploded. Mm-hmm. You start to go back and you start realizing that the number of books available to people pre-1900 is quite slim. And the chance of them even finding the book is even slimmer, you know? They existed, but there wasn't like some massive library that every magician had. Um, plus, books were expensive. Yeah. You know, books were not cheap. They were always like these beautiful hardcovers. Sometimes there was like pulpy kind of books, but generally speaking, it was like it was hard to find these books anywhere. Yeah. Um, the fact that books exist on card cheating from the 1800s to me is incredible. But uh, you find a lot of like hidden techniques and stuff in there that I find to be far superior than stuff that we kind of do today. So I was, I was going through some really, really old stuff. I found a trick where the description was this. Select a card, goes back in the deck, deck goes into a, a glass or whatever on the table. You put your hands on either side, you start wiggling your fingers, and as you do, one card floats out of the deck and starts floating between your hands. Then you just wiggle one of your fingers towards the hand, and the, the card floats up vertically. Then it floats horizontally to your fingertips, and you grab the card. This is like 1800s. Yeah. Like, how come no one's done this before? I'm like, this is a miracle. So I start grabbing all the stuff that I would need to like make this happen. Get a little camera, watch myself. Do it. Watch it. It's pure magic. Pure magic. And we're going at least 100 years old. Mm-hmm. 100 and change. Yeah. So for me, the old stuff is a treasure hunt. That's why I really love it. Because you find stuff nobody else is doing. Nobody cares about. It's just been lost. It's yeah. been lost. No, one, no one's interested anymore. But I think they had to work so hard back then that we need to consider the effort required to create magic back, back in the day. I'm assuming could be much greater than it is today. We can pick up a deck of cards, fiddle with a new move, and go, oh, was that new? Was that original? Not really sure, but as far as we're concerned, it was a creative process. We have an outcome. There's something we're left with, and we can do something. Great. Back then, man, they had to work hard, especially because there was so many props back in the day. Like Victorian sort of parlor magic, there was a lot of stuff that you could buy, a lot of, you know, toys and things, Uh, which is super cool. Nothing against it. I actually love it. I love that super old stuff, but they used to have, like, a houlette. You know, a little playing card holder. You'd put a deck of cards in perfectly with glass on the front and the back or the sides. Sometimes they had like a little clip so you could like wear it like a ring and just sit like straight up in your hand. And then you'd like a rising card from it, for example. Yeah. But these little like props and things were so commonplace, but someone had to make them. Yeah. Someone had to invent them in the first place. And it was a time when we were, I think, much more resourceful with physical things. Like there's some really neat books from like the 1930s, 1940s, where it was like um, magic tricks for kids. And it was like, well, how do you make these tricks? go find an empty can and a pair of tin shears or tin snips mm-hmm. and you would cut the rim out and the bottoms basically off of the cans. You'd cut it up the side and you'd unravel it and you'd have this little sheet of tin and it would show you, take this, draw this on your tin, cut it out, and this is it. This is your thing. 
Amazing. You had to make your own props and like bend it with pliers. And then when you're done, you had this, I assume, assume super razor sharp, deadly, tetanus ready device. And you were a magician. And you would, <laughs> and you would do magic for a child. <laughs> you did magic for children and give them these super sharp objects. And they had a great time. Went to the hospital. Yeah. It was a good night. If they but, had uh, a hospital. Yeah, right. They, they were just put in a bathtub and they got the next Several day. Several miles from here. <laughs> get horseback. The, get in the buggy. If they had a buggy. Yeah, that's They'd right. go bore your neighbor's buggy. But, uh... Yeah, I, I I love all that stuff. Just yeah. like the fact that you have to be resourceful, make your own stuff out of a tin can. Yeah, today that's unfathomable for us. Like we just don't have that that skill set. I just anymore. wouldn't do it. You just not, not, not interested. Not interested. Not interested. <laughs> but back in the day, you had to. That was necessity. No, absolutely. Know? Yeah. So in a funny, sad way, we've lost a lot of the prop makers that once existed, and magic has taken that shift. You see, we're very minimalistic about things. And yeah. We have a few bits and pieces, and then we have like some luxury goods now, like leather luxury goods for like deck holders and stuff, yeah. which is very vain of us. But um, but it's neat. I'm, I'm digging the whole evolution of it. I just wish we still had those makers that were like, okay, I'm going to make a tree that blossoms, real oranges come out, and then butterflies fly out holding someone's object. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, what? Compare that to the stuff we do today, and I think there's just such a huge disparity between the two as an effect to an, to an audience watching. Yeah... But then you're going to go, well, but it's so much work. And no, it's not about the work. It's about the audience. You know? You think we've changed? Uh, like audiences have grown past that or we're not, that's not something we're interested in anymore? I think audiences have grown past that as far as magic and astonishment are concerned. Really? Yes. I think appreciation of it as beautiful and artistic... No, that's that is universal. Now, when you titles. say move past it, what what causes you to say that? I just mean that I think people are uh, just just humans in general, first world humans in general, uh, have a much higher threshold for genuine astonishment. I'm glad you said that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of misconceptions about old magic, and people have assumptions. And sure. I've talked to some really, really, really neat people that know a lot about this stuff. Yeah. And they explained this to me, which I thought was really clever. He goes, you know, a lot of the time we assume that what these old people were doing was supposed to look realistic. Yeah. It was supposed to look like a real tree. People believed it was a real tree. Yeah. And the truth is, that's not the case at all. Yeah. One of the wonderful things about, like, Houdin's automatons, for example, is all of the automatons were smarter than everybody else's automatons because they worked in different ways. Mm-hmm. So... The orange tree, no one believed it was a real orange tree. But there were real oranges. Yeah. But at the same time period, there were other people traveling and touring with automatons, extremely Mm. complex automatons. Yeah. And of course, Houdin's dirty little secret was his kind of weren't real automatons. Yeah. Someone else was manipulating outcomes of it. You know, it wasn't like purely mechanical. It didn't like have the ring, drop it into a slot, and the slot, you know, picked it up and moved it somewhere and then delivered it through this crazy clockwork. Yes. There was clockwork and stuff involved, but no one believed that it was real. Yeah. And I think that's a big misconception we have. Like spring flowers. People are like, oh, everyone thought they were real flowers. Steinmeier, Jim Steinmeier, brilliant, totally schooled me on this. He goes, no, they weren't real. It was a thing that people did. It was like a craft that you would do with tissue paper, I think around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be these little delicate, decorative tissue flowers. I'm like, well, I had no idea. I had no idea. Like it blew my mind that that was what they were. Sure. Everyone just goes, oh, these things look terrible. And you go, no, no, but that's not what they were supposed to be. Yeah. They were representative of a thing. And that changes the, like, the psychology of it. Absolutely. Now, when you start producing hundreds of them, you're going, wait a minute. There's no way that they could squeeze or collapse because they know how delicate this thing was because it was a part of their day-to-day life. Yeah. I think that's the you bigger are problem. Abs- you are absolutely right about all of that. If you were going to do that in front of an audience today, they wouldn't give a shit because they don't do that anymore. That's it's what not I'm relevant about. anymore. It's I mean, I think today relevant. you almost have to be more realistic because we don't have that. 
you know, or you can go buy plastic flowers. We know that that's a thing. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, in certain ways, audiences are a bit wiser to stuff. Yeah. But you have to look at the old stuff, not as if it was all perfect and real. You really do have to take a step back. Yeah. And go, what did the audience think they were seeing? And yeah. was the audience being pushed the idea that this was real? Yeah. I mean, if you read old Houdin, like, um, bills and programs, mm. his advertisements were great. He was like, you know, the inexhaustible bottle. Everyone gets a drink, and when you're done drinking, we'll pour you more. Yeah. You know, until everyone's drunk. It was like, that was the impression that you're getting. You're like, oh my God, I want to go see this show where the whole audience gets wasted from a single bottle of, of whatever. Yeah. Um, but he, you can see the playfulness even in it. Mm. Even though we kind of read it and imagine being this, this gentleman on stage being very yeah. proper. No, it was very tongue-in-cheek. It's like Shakespeare. Yeah. People read Shakespeare and they go, how could anybody do this? That was like the peasant speak. That's People how don't re- realize all the stuff that changed in Shakespeare's time. Yeah, there's a lot of really amazing innovations. Just in theater in general, going back, there's cool moments. Sure. So oh, there, yeah. there is this like, there's this weird misconception about old magic. I agree. My uh, and it's my not all good. Not... I should also point that out. Not all magic is good magic. Yeah, totally. That's we what just have yeah. a giant treasure chest. Imagine you've got a giant treasure chest full of fake gold, but there's one real gold coin in. That's what like the history of magic for me a lot of the time is like. Yeah. I love the stories and watching the lineage, which I think is a separate thing. Yeah. But like actually looking for old material, there's a lot of terrible stuff that came out back then. There's lots of stuff we do much better now. Mm-hmm. But when you dig a little bit, you find this like this one gem that's just this perfect, amazing miracle. Yeah. How come no? You have this sort of epiphany. How come no one does this? Yeah. Um, that's you what put I in way more it. effort than anybody else. That's <laughs> like, all well, it was. That's why no one does You say that, but that's true. a lot of people don't do it, but I'm not the only one. Just There's a lot of people that do do the same sort of stuff. And yeah, love but the percentage of use and the it's percentage of magicians. There's not a lot of people small. that want to chase that stuff and put the work in to do it. Yeah. Um, but to me, I mean, it's, that's where my heart is. That's where the passion lies for me, and I just, I yeah. just love the stories. And that's beautiful. That's and it's awesome. amazing to talk to other people that like it because you always someone can always blow your mind with a story. Yeah. yeah like I, I bought these books. There's a really neat story. Max Maven was the one that sort of told me it. Um, about the um, the encyclopedia of card tricks, Hugo's encyclopedia of card yeah. tricks, and a lot of people, I guess, don't know the story, and I had no idea. But Max told this incredible story at the LA conference on magic history. It was in like the dealer's room, and there's two books there. And I said, "I'm so sorry, do you mind if I listen to this?" Because the story was just so enrapturing. The books were put out apparently by a guy named. Uh, there's two. There's two copies of this. It was like volume one, which was massive, and then volume two was like a really thin volume. And it was published by a man named Dr. Wilhelm von Dusen. Edited by Glenn Gravitt. And it was like all stolen material. Okay, yeah. He just jacked everyone's stuff. Commercial tricks and things. And published this. Like it's huge. And it's a big format book. Big red format cover book. It's all stolen stuff. So everyone like. I guess there must have been outrage at some point. And people are like. Who's this Dr. Von Dusen? And even in the introduction. Like Gravitt writes the introduction. And he goes. We've done our best to credit everybody in this book, so if there's any omissions, that should all fall on Dr. Von Dusen. Yeah. Well, here's a dirty little secret. There is no Dr. Von Dusen. It's Glenn Gravitt. Yeah. So Gravitt did it. He advertises this book, and everyone who bought the first copy will have access to the second copy. And then the magic world like turned on him and found out, right? And they're like, what's this all about? Where's Von Dusen? And I guess he eventually cracked, or they found out that information that he didn't exist. Yeah. And um, and I, I, remember, I don't remember who it was that was really pushing, but there was a group of people that were like, dude, you lose the book. It's not yours anymore. Hugert, can you please clean this up and get permission from people? So the one that we know was actually Hugert had to go through it, take out all the stolen stuff that they had no permission for, boil it down to the stuff that they could get permission for, and they added new things as well as crediting, and that's the book we know today. Yeah. And I'm not sure, this is where it gets a little sticky for me. I need to look at the dates. The second edition, like the second volume, no one really realized there was a second volume. I don't know if that ever got published in the Hugert exactly. edition. 
I know that most of the stuff or a lot of stuff in the first one did, but I don't know if the second one came out after it and whose material it was. I'm willing to bet it's probably mostly just Glenn Gravitt publishing his own stuff. Yeah. But even something like, like that, to me, blew my mind. That is to me, Absolutely. The Encyclopedia of Card Tricks by Huger is a, it's a great book. Yeah. It's inexpensive. It's hardcover, which I like. Well, there's a soft cover, but I always prefer a hardcover book. And it's, it's just, there's amazing, neat, knacky quirks, tricks, stuff that was often not even supposed to be released. The fact that Gravit turned on so many people and that material made it onto the page also means that when it did get released through Hugard, he got permission for a lot of stuff that he probably would not have got permission for. Yeah. And they were probably like, well, it's already been published. I'm making an assumption here. Yeah. It's already been published, so yeah, let's just run with it. I just want credit for it now. Exactly. Just yeah. give me credit for it. Um, which is funny and ironic because then we've got expert card technique. And expert card technique comes out in 1940. There's no credit in given. And most of the stuff, or a lot of the stuff, is Charlie Miller's and Di Vernon's. Yeah. Um, yeah. So eventually it comes up with a second edition. They start to credit some people in it. And then, of course, the, the notorious third edition comes out. Everyone's made amends. Um, and Vernon and Daly do extra chapters in the back. Yeah. And the extra chapters are incredibly good. And it's Vernon talking about, like, really good old stuff. Like, Vernon goes over the bottom change, which is a very, very old... Unusual technique. Yep. And what's neat about the description is like Huger chimes in, or Browie, whoever wrote this, chimes in and is like, we wanted to find out from Vernon, you know, what does he get asked to do a lot? Or what do we get asked about a lot? Sorry. So I guess Huger was saying like, everyone keeps asking for a description of the bottom change, the bottom change, the bottom change. And like, well, who should we get to do it? Like, Vernon, get Vernon to do it. Mm -hmm. So we did. And then Vernon goes over the bottom change and it's mind-blowingly good. It's really, really good. And then he has his all-backs routine in there. Then Daly has a whole chapter on like palming cards. Mm -hmm. And again, it's great. It's really, really good. So it's it's funny to see though that Huger had to clean up someone else's mess and then he gets himself into his own mess and has to clean it up through three different editions of the Didn't book. Didn't you already learn? <laughs> yeah, right? How many times are we gonna do this? Yeah. But even going that far back, you know? He was oh, just before his time. He's like, I don't give a shit about any of this. Credit <laughs> people? I'm Gene Huger, goddammit. <laughs> But yeah, he, he was in a lot of situations like that where you know he had to apologize for certain things. Erdnades, I think there was a point. I think there was a moment in Hugard's Magic Monthly. I wish I had all my books and stuff or like research in front of me. So I'd be like, let me pull this out so I'm correcting it. So someone's going to be like, you're wrong, Shane. This is a podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not prepared for this. So there's one moment when Vernon... Hugard was saying that... He was making an accusation of sorts of Vernon. It's like, oh, Vernon's just trying to sell you know old wine and new bottles. Or new wine and old bottles, sorry. Uh, with that Erdnay stuff. He's just pushing this old stuff as new again. And um, and he had to come back and retract it and make an apology to Vernon. Be like, sorry, I made fun of Erdnays. I didn't mean to. And th it's in writing somewhere. I know it's in writing somewhere. I remember reading it. But it was amazing that that happened too. You know, you can imagine like Hugert sitting around talking smack about Vernon and it gets back to him and Vernon's like, what? I contribute to all of his publications. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> and you just imagine that phone call. You know, you can just imagine Hugert put up the phone. Hello? It's Vernon. Hey, die. <laughs> Let's talk about Erdnays. What about it? You know, like he was like walking on eggshells. This yeah. is just a picture in my head. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he had to come back and apologize for it, which I thought was kind of super funny and super neat. That is super funny. Yeah, man. Huger got himself in a lot of sticky situations. But then again, he put out some remarkable work. Yeah. Huger's Magic Monthly, Encyclopedia of Card Tricks, um, the whole series of little booklets that they released. Yeah. Um, um, expert Card Manipulations. Yeah. Card Manipulations is or great. Card Manipulations, yeah. Um, the expert card manipulation was like, I think, um, was it Ganson? But yeah, there's just there's a yeah. ton of these incredible works that he was part of. I mean, 
Royal Road. Yeah. Right? I mean, this, if you just took the Huger published material, even if it was like Gravitz and he like worked on it, and released that to the public, or to like magicians as a whole, and you're like, you, this is your required It's reading. the foundation of card magic. Yeah, lo- largely the foundation of card magic. There's so much good stuff in there. And the funny thing about those books, they're just the Huger work in particular. Expert Card Technique, Encyclopedia of Card Tricks, Royal Road to Card Magic. We'll just use those three. There's more, but let's just use those three key books. Magicians always fool me with something simple out of those books. I'm like, that was great. That was amazing. What was it? You know, wait, do, can we talk about it? Yeah. If they want to talk about it. Like, no, no. If they want to fool me, I'm totally fine with that too. I, I, I love being fooled. and just Because no one shows me magic anymore. Yeah. No one like, wants to show me card tricks, which sucks. But it happens. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but when they do, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, unless it's really poorly done. Then I'm going to be honest with them. Like, let's talk about this. But when I get fooled bad, it's always or it's often from some really old, amazing thing in like a book that I should, I should know better. I always feel like I should know better. Uh, it's a good motivation to go back and read something. You should just be safe again. and be like, oh, that's an, oh, that's that an extra thing? card deck. <laughs> well, there's funny moments. You know, there's, I, I don't know if you've experienced I think you, you, you definitely have. You hit like a certain point in your magic where like you stop trying to be cool about being fooled. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? But you should like, oh, that old thing? No. Oh, yeah, no, you did that really that well. That makes me so mad. Me too. I hate that. I want to be gobsmacked. Exactly. And I will let you know that you fucking floored me. I, I, we are on the same page. If you fool me, I will lavishly, lavishly praise yeah. that and let you know. I'm so fooled right now. I'm so happy. Like, this, yeah. is, this is such a great moment for me. I don't experience this as often as I would like to. Let's talk about being fooled. Because yeah. I'm talking about like feeling true astonishment. Right. If I if if you do something for me and I don't know how it's done, but I'm not astonished, I don't give a shit. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's I don't know how you did it, but like, whatever. Oh, now we're not, let's let's expand this ever so slightly. Okay. Not just astonishment, but experiences based on magic tricks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm talking about being fool specifically. I know what you yeah. mean. So you'll I'm, I'm trying to add a branch to it. You'll I'll, yeah, you'll yeah. understand. Okay. You'll understand. Okay. There's certain tricks in magic that read poorly and perform incredibly. Yes. And there's certain tricks that are terrible tricks until someone performs it for you and only you. There's a unique experience. I don't know if there's, maybe there's like a German word for it. Shouted or something. Yeah, or Japanese word that we don't have. Um, but there's, there's a term for it, I hope. Certain effects you have to experience to understand how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a great example. Marlowe's Miracle Aces. It's, in, uh, it's one of the I've Marlo heard magazines. lore of this trick. I've never had anyone do it for me. Really? So I think as published, because Marlo's, to me, Marlo's fatal flaw was he couldn't put the cards down. He had a hard time giving the cards to somebody else. If you read a lot of the tricks that he did, he often kept the cards in his hand for everything. Mm-hmm. So this particular trick is like, it's a, it's a very fair ace cutting routine where the cards kind of, you just, you shuffle, you shuffle, you do a couple shuffles, and then you just start cutting and dead cutting to aces. Like true dead cutting. Reach down, boom, cut. With a borrowed deck, potentially. Mm-hmm. So you cut, you take the ace off and show, and then you actually show that there's the next card and the card before it were not aces. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like there's just a stock you got to hit. Put it back together again, cards on the table, reach down, cut. And Marlo did it himself, I believe, in the description. So the first natural step for people, and again, it's like, well, who do you credit for this? Nobody, because it was such an easy step, I think, for people. Like, how do you give the first person to do this? I think that's when we get, like, that's when crediting goes wrong, I think. When we get, like, too granular about a very tiny thing that's not big enough to be like, oh, well, that's justified. Yeah. But, um, okay. So, because, like, the first natural step for people, I think, is stuff like that. So, okay. So, when you put a deck of cards in front of somebody, and, you know, if you wouldn't mind giving the cards a cut, a little less than half or about a third of the deck, mm-hmm. or about half, whatever your descriptor is for it. Yeah. There's something magical about them reaching down, cutting, and looking, and it's an ace. Yeah. And it's a sensation that you, you rarely get in magic. Yeah. 
it's I would almost say it's beyond astonishment. It's truly you're truly dumbfounded because you did everything. It could not be more fair, and it worked. I think that is going, what astonishment is. Like true astonishment is, and I wrote it down, is a surprise that you appreciate as amazing. I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But I think there needs to be levels or like various depths of it. And to me, that particular trick was the one that opened my eyes to a different level of astonishment. Yeah, that's what I'm and talking about. And they're super about. rare. They're, they're so hard to find. Because you can also know how something is done and feel that astonishment. It, and the other thing is it reads poorly on paper. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is a lot of work to do this particular thing. Yeah. yeah. And then you see someone perform it, you're like, oh, that looked good. Yeah. But the moment that you were the one that cuts and hits that ace... There's no feeling like it. Yeah. And when you tell them, oh, let's do it again. Yeah, one more, one, okay. Go ahead. And they cut again. And you really aren't doing anything. There's, yeah. there's no sleight of hand involved yeah, yeah, in this yeah. for the most part. Um, so they reach down and they're almost like hesitant because they're like, they're kind of scared now because now they know what's going to happen. Yeah. And they do it. Now there's higher it, disbelief. Yeah. They nail it again. And it's one of those like, oh my God. It's what is going on right body. now? Yeah, yeah it's full just, body astonishment. It's a completely overwhelming astonishment. Not like you see a trick and you're fooled. You're like, oh my god, that was amazing, and it really is. It's like a whole different ball game. So, like I was talking to someone before, and this isn't a universal truth, but I, I enjoy this as a as a talking point with yeah. magicians. I find it's fun to perform for people and see what they do. A lot of magicians crave that 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 applause. They need that round of applause after their magic, and they'll often either ask for it or they'll assume positions that command it. Yeah. That's okay. I'm not a big fan of asking for it. I don't think you should be like the first time I saw that trick, I didn't clap. You know, like those kinds of lines. They're just yeah. not my cup of tea. But I think like the best reaction for a lot of magic is not that round of applause. It's silence. Yeah. It is silence. There's a story about Ross Bertram performing in like a strip club. <laughs> where Ross's magic I think this is one of the Bertram books I think it's in Magic and Methods but okay. I'm not 100% so it's either in Bertram's Light of Hand or Magic and Methods of Ross Bertram where he worked at a strip club or you know what maybe David Ben told the story in the uh, Genie magazine that he did on, on Bertram but in any case Ross was a musician as well so he had something called the Rhythm Count where basically you could set a metronome and he would do magic with that timing and if he ever was like off beat if a move was off beat he knew that he had to work on it to smooth it out so that Met the beat perfectly. Yeah. So that's a very high level of thinking about your work and your handling of things. So I, I think he was at this particular club. Um, I read this years ago, so I really hope I'm not off in this. He's at this club. Just make it better. Just make it better. Just make yeah, it like yeah. more grandiose. Yeah. yeah so yeah. he's walking out on stage, and the music that's playing, he's walking to the beat of it perfectly. Yeah. And the magic he's going to do is to those beats. So he goes up on stage, and he's doing all of his magic and such. And he comes off afterwards, and he gets basically fired. You know? Uh, he did a great job, whatever. He got paid for the gig and stuff, but it was like he was never asked to come back again. Yeah. And the owner was really sort of upset about it because no one bought any drinks while he was doing his performance. <laughs> Everyone was apparently fully enraptured by it. Yeah. They were just like, It was Whoa. mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're mesmerized in that way, you know, I, I think this sort of happens when you see magic and you're fooled by something. Yeah. For, for like laymen a lot of the time. You're watching intently, we hope, so you care. You're watching intently. You're fooled real bad. And you have that moment where like your jaw goes just slightly slack and your eyes get a little bit wide. You pause for a moment. And then if you're with someone, you look, you usually turn to them to acknowledge that they saw the same thing and you're not like going crazy. And you both have that moment where you look at each other. Maybe you both laugh because that's also natural after like the, the both looking, like they may giggle a bit. Or it's just true astonishment and then back to the performer. And you're almost like paralyzed from the neck down. Then you have to like tunnel vision. Yeah, kind of. And you sort of yeah. come back to life again. Mm-hmm. And a lot of magicians are uncomfortable with that, with that silence. But for me, it's a, such a golden moment. Yeah. So sometimes, I'm, you know, it's just a little quip. And it's, you know, to anyone that does this, it's fine. I'm not, no one's being attacked here. But 
But the little line that I'll throw out there for someone is, if your audience is applauding, maybe you weren't that great. You know, yeah. maybe the magic wasn't that strong. Sure. Now, I'm not saying that you should aspire to never be, you know, applauded. But what I'm saying is there are different ways to measure, you know, how good something was. Mm. Uh, and not receiving applause, I don't think we should think of as a negative. I think it's an extraordinary positive that we should embrace instead of stepping on it and killing that moment for those people. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think a lot of that has to do with how magic is marketed these days. Yeah, it, unfortunately. It, it is a get a big reaction. Destroy your audiences, ruin their lives, make their face explode. Like it's getting so dramatic. Melt their underwear. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, Melt like, their brains. You'll see it spill out of their body. You're like, whoa, yeah, man. That's a lot. Can we all just calm down for a minute? Can, can we, we all have like an artistic experience here? <laughs> can, can this not be so graphic? Can we just sip on some scotch and relax? Can we just do that, please? Let's just have just that as that. a moment. Yeah. But yeah, we chase. I think sometimes we chase the wrong things. Um, and a lot of it's ego-based. Not necessarily ego wrong, just not, you know, n- not necessarily right. <laughs> Sometimes our priorities could be a little out of order. I, I think, and that's just a personal opinion. Yeah, Some people just exactly, want, want applause, sure. and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's also a very, very commercial approach. Like, if you're doing gigs, if you're gigging hard and, like, an event planner hires you, the person that hired you wants to hear your people clap. Yeah, because they're measuring your success in a different way. Based on an audible or, like, an, exactly, an, an extrovert reaction to things, where a lot of the time I think magic can make someone feel very introverted for a moment, and mm-hmm. they slowly, you know, open up to it. Yeah. So... In that way, I totally get it. If yeah. I'm gigging and I need to, you of course have to build in those moments. If you want to mail pieces, mail people's yeah. faces. Yeah. I mean, if you're yeah, if you're up close, I think close-up magic has different criteria too. Mm-hmm. Like on stage, you kind of need those applause, and people have been trained for generations and generations to applaud. Yeah. So a lot of the time, you should give them that opportunity so that they can let out that particular you know experience or emotion. Um, also depends on how long the performance is. You know, like mm-hmm. five or ten minutes, you don't necessarily get any applause, but at the end, you may take an applause cue and they'll give it to you. You know, exactly as you'd expect they would. Um, but I just, I'm so careful to try not to ruin those moments when there is that silence. Yeah, you don't want to step on it. I don't want to step on it. And I know it's uncomfortable, but if you if you realize that what's happening is beautiful and brilliant and great, well, it's kind of a, it's an all or nothing mentality. You're flipping a coin of sorts. Either what you did was brilliant and great or it was really, really bad. Yeah. But you know what's even worse than silence that's bad? The polite clap. Yeah. The little, the golf clap or the clap that doesn't go on for long enough is like three good... That's the worst. Yeah, that's like the whole audience going, "That's cute." Exactly. <laughs> oh, that was nice. Yeah. My my niece does magic. You know, it's like one of those moments. Yeah. My nephew would love this. Oh, that. that, that <laughs> that's like, another. No, you're funny. supposed to love it. Well, make I'm me love it. Do something. It's the, it's like that thought that like magic's a child's pastime. Yeah. And I I could not disagree more. I, mean, I think children can truly enjoy it. I think everyone can enjoy it. Absolutely. But um, but that that strong misconception that magic is a children's thing yeah. is, I think, unfortunately lost on most people. Mm-hmm. But that being said, there's not a lot of adult magic shows to go see. And it's very easy to have experienced a performer specifically for children. Yes. Which is a whole different skill set than, than well, I mean, I, a lot of overlap. No, yeah, of course. But like, I am not a good children's performer. You do not want me to do a kid's party. It's just not going to be good enough. You're way it's too hairy for that. Way too hairy. I'm like <laughs> Chewbacca when I walk in. You want to get like David Case, Silly Billy out there, you know? He's just, he's so much fun. Or there's a really yeah. great magician in Toronto named Richard Lin, Tricky Ricky. And he is hilarious. Um, Chinese Jamaican magician. Wow. Yeah, and he takes advantage of all of it. And he is so good at it. So, so good. He is just like the quintessential amazing children's magician. People absolutely adore him. He gets booked months and months in advance. I would probably go so far to say that now if he isn't retired, he's doing like a year in advance to try and get Tricky Ricky to come to your party. Wow. But but that's a very specialist, you know, world. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, you know, it's like it's just too bad there's not more opportunities around the world. LA is pretty good for seeing like sort of adult centric magic, and the castle is a fantastic place to kind of really like drive that home. The Magic Castle, because you got to be 21 to walk in the door. Yeah, you know, unless it's the brunch, which you can bring children to. But other than that, the castle really is about adults appreciating magic. I think. Yeah. And having a neat experience and coming to an amazing place and great food and great people and. And good drinks, you know, the castle is it's a u- super unique, amazing adult experience. And I, I hope it opens a lot of people's eyes to it. But that's a very local influence, mm-hmm. you know. It would be nice if, you know, every major city in the world had some sort of great, strong, adult-centric magic yeah. that you can go just see and appreciate. Um, the other thing I think is sort of neat is we often play for laughs too much. We play so much for comedy and magic. And it certainly has its place. Absolutely it has its place. But there's something beautiful about seeing some sort of serious magic if you I, that's, a, that's a bad term for it but magic that's just a little bit more um that's just not playing for laughs just magic is not meant to make you laugh yeah um and i think that a laugh is an easy reaction not that it's easy to get yeah um, like i'm terrible at scripting funny I'm, i can be situationally funny but i cannot script it so like for my life i can't script it yeah but you're not a comedy writer i'm very much not um <laughs> you do not want me to write comedy like that for myself it'd be an absolute nightmare um, but, you know, there's something beautiful about kind of going for not the laugh. Yeah. But the laugh, once you get it, is it feels good. Just like the applause feels good. As a performer, it's a very safe, you know, reaction to get if yeah. you're good enough and you can get it. Yeah. Um, but I think that, yeah, I would love to see more people trying to get silence mm-hmm. in their work. Like, that's the goal. And they're comfortable with it being silent and just letting it soak in. Yeah. Mentalists do it so well. They're so comfortable with that. Because they know the experience that people are having is such a deeper experience in that way that they you don't clap, yeah. you know. Oh, did you? I'm getting. You have a, a sick dog. You don't start clapping, you know. You're like, oh my god, I do have a sick dog. But that moment is a very like whoa moment. Yeah. The audience doesn't start clapping because you got something right. And with magic, we kind of experience either the laugh or the clap a lot of the time. Yeah. So yeah, I just I love the silence. Love it. Yeah. The silence is a different kind of. Th- thing um so my definition of astonishment Mm -hmm. is uh it's like an aggressive emotion it's a it's a surprise that you recognize and appreciate as amazing and possibly impossible uh so like what would be a word for the same thing but when you're silent because like oftentimes when you're I would astonished, like, like dumbfounded, dumbfounded, uh, flabbergasted, flabbergasted is a really good one. You know, uh, but like, you know, astonished, you gasp or you, yeah. you like when I get like really astonished, my whole I like jump, my whole body moves. But like, I also really love the like profound experience that makes me silent. It, it's not like it's profound is a good word, like profound disbelief. But even that doesn't quite nail it. It's like I said, there's like a word in some other language that like just nails it. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. But like speechless is is getting towards it. Yeah, it's I mean that idea. But we're all we're kind of describing the result, not yeah, the feeling. Not the you know? feeling. Yeah. And I don't know if I have a good descriptor for that feeling. Yeah. See, there's not there's not a there's not a glossary for. I know. It's too bad. Yeah. But you know what? That's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to kind of explore that. Imagine if there was like a magician and all they did was that kind of magic at an extraordinary level. Yeah. And they were eventually, they define it and they chase it. And they're like, here's my methodology for doing it. Here's the process that gets me to this point. Here's why they experience this. That would be an incredible branch of magic to explore for somebody if that's really what they wanted to chase. Yeah. Um, and I think of a guy like Winston Freer. Do you remember Winston Freer at all? I've heard that name. 
Who's Look that? him up. Winston Freer, I, I'm not an expert in Freer by any means. Yeah. But I'll give you sort of one, a couple of effects that Freer did that were kind of neat. And you, they read extraordinarily well. Like Freer would do a show for like a school and it would be like outside, for example. And at the end of the show, he'd have a whole backdrop and stuff set up. At the end of the show, or the, no, I think at the beginning of the show, he'd like plant a seed in the dirt. I'm going to totally be like describing this incorrectly. So people are going to like jump on me. But he plants a seed in the dirt <clears throat> and he's doing the show and performing, performing, performing. He keeps coming back and watering it. And then uh, watering, watering. And I think he covers it up. And by the end of the show, he pulls it away and there's a full grown tree there. A real full grown tree with a root system. And he just leaves the tree. He made a tree appear yeah. in his like 45 minute show rooted in the ground yeah. at their property. Like he did stuff that was just mind blowing. Or he'd, he'd like thank his audience member. Or, thank you so much for helping me. As a little special gift, I'm going to let you see into the universe. And he'd cup his hands and make a little eye hole oh, with his thumb. Oh, this is what I've heard And about. he'd look inside and you'd see planets and stuff. You'd see the universe and his hands were empty. Yeah. I'm like, that is like yeah. a head exploding moment. Yeah. I think if you ever went up to someone, I really want to do this trick. I was like this close to doing it. And I have a, a friend of mine shared like an unpublished version of it. Like I think it's, it's David Harkey's unpublished version of it. And I'm like, this is incredibly good. Like it's mind-blowingly great. So I'm like, I need to make this thing yeah. and, and do it. Like make this like possible. So I tried to play with different methods of doing it and things. I never finished it. I never actually like finished the, the, the product and the thing that I wanted. But, um, but now that we're talking like free, I need to go back and like relive that thing and try and do it again. Because I would love to have an assistant. Thank you so much for helping me. Um, you know what? As a little... Just something I like to do for you. I'd like to give you just a quick look into the universe. You just cup your hands, they look into, and they just they see the universe. I just want to see the reaction to it because it reads so well, and it's such an incredible like idea. That's astonishment. That's what that would be. But you don't know because you've never seen someone react to it yet. You just know it's astonishing on paper. Yeah. So like that Marlowe trick. It reads kind of poorly, but yeah. you know the technique and stuff involved in it. You're not going like, oh, this is great. You're like, eh, next trick. Yeah. Somebody could potentially go, oh yeah. Well, Whatever. Or someone looks at this and says, um, I saw the rings of Saturn and I saw the, the moon orbiting the sun. Like, it's possible the sun orbiting, um, orbiting the earth. <laughs> we were orbiting the sun. But, like, imagine that that's what they see. Yeah. They look inside and, and that's, the, that's what they walk away with? Yeah. Oh my God. I want to do that. He had an impromptu suspension that he would do. Okay? He would, like, it was a, there's a really great photo of it, like an IBM or an SAM. Convention Is this him thing. on the table? Yeah. Okay. That was impromptu. He could do that, like, Impromptu. Like he was prepared to well, do so it. So describe to people. As okay. So that my uh, my understanding was, Free would like walk around and do whatever he wanted, and then uh, if there was like a gathering of people, or he would he'd be able to make someone float on the spot anywhere, anytime. So imagine, you know, this person, let's say, like lies down on on a, a board. I don't know the exact details of what he was doing to put that person in position. It might have been that he held them. I, I need to read the description to get exactly what it was. Yeah. Like, it's possible that I think he may have held her, like, up in his arms. This is irrelevant. <laughs> you think that, but this is an important distinction for, like, how the trick would look. You're like, oh, well, that's just this old thing. No, no, oh, it's yeah, not. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. he's doing it on top of, like, a big banquet table yeah. at a magician's convention where he's, or a gathering or a magic meeting. And he's surrounded, basically, because he's in the middle of the table, like a dining room table. Well, people are, like, eating around him, which is also kind of funny. Talk about giving no shits, huh? He's like, <laughs> excuse me, move your lasagna. Get on there. Come here. <laughs> So I think she lies back and falls into his arms. Yeah. And then he holds her out and then lets his arms drop and she just floats in front of him. She's just like like a board lying in front of him, just floating there. Yeah. Impromptu. Yeah. On a table that's clearly ungimmicked at a magic meeting surrounded by magicians. And remember, he's on a table, which means they're looking up. Yeah. What? 
Yeah. Seriously? To me, that's like, we're, we're really talking about miracle class stuff. And Freer yeah. had a ton of amazing material like that. I don't know if there's ethics around this particular thing, but Todd Carr at Miracle Factory has like a DVD of like Winston Freer and it's a bunch of things from magazines that were pulled and his version, the Rice Bowls is in there as well. He's got a version of it and he's got a really neat linking ring routine. Is it ungimmicked? Just like normal rings and they like link and unlink? I think that's right. But Freer just had brilliant, amazing, like batshit crazy ideas about stuff and he, he did them though. He didn't just talk about them. He was like, oh, you could kind of maybe do this. He would do them. To me, that, that's just, that's the kind of magic I just love. That yeah. kind of character, that person doing that kind of thing. Yeah, Winston Freer. Check that's out Winston great. Freer. F-R-E-E-R. I just want to see the stuff. You know, yeah. like I want to see like video of this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But that's another fun part of this, right? Well, that goes back to you like imagining it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Right? In my head, I know I know the miracle I'm seeing, but yeah. the chance that it actually happened that way. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, whatever happens in my head is probably not what originally happened. Oh, totally. There's like a 0% chance that it, it matches up perfectly. I'm yeah. sure I'm glamorizing it in my own head, but I, I want that. And I want that for all the magic that I try to like either create or recreate. Yeah. If I have an image in my head of what it is, it's usually, probably, I would imagine, better than what it would have been back then for a number of reasons. Yeah. Technology, craftsmanship, materials that are available, all kinds of stuff like that. Well, that goes back to what I, what I wrote down earlier, which is that's what super influenced the way that I handle cards is when I would go back and read Vernon and Daly and Charlie Miller and Jack McMillan and all that stuff, I pictured Ricky doing all the moves I was reading. Oh, and wow. I was like... This is how soft those guys are because that's who Ricky looks up to. They had to be better than he was. And that's he's the exactly best person it. I've ever seen. I have the exact same mentality and I agree with you. Ricky's a phenomenal card handler. I mean, yeah. you want to see someone like really smooth with cards. Ricky can smooth out anything. Yeah. There's a certain skill to smoothing out moves in magic. Yeah. It's like the, the people have this concept that, oh, if I'm reading the technique and I do point A to point B, that's it. It's good. Yeah. It's like, well, let's think about that. That's, that's where like, people stop. Yeah, but that's like a dancer, okay? Oh, yeah, no, well, you start here and you're going to end there. So as long as you just start here and end there, you're fine. Yeah. Well, if you don't do the dance part, you know, really, really well, yeah. um, there's no art in what you've just done. You, exactly. I mean, maybe there is somewhere to be found, but you just walked across the stage. Yeah. It's not about ending at point B. It's about the journey from point A to point B and the finesse and the gentle moments and the psychology of pausing and the tiny steps you take to conclude something. It's all those little bits and pieces that add up to become like a remarkable thing. Yeah. Like, you know, a great example. If you watch, um, like, you know, Tony Chang's, like, Be Kind change? Tony has really soft hands for that particular move. Like, it's just a beautiful, beautiful move. And it's one of those things that's so beautiful. I would love to have that be, like, a video clip, like a GIF, on loop, on a video, like, on screen, in a museum. Yeah. That's it. Just put that up on a wall and just have, like, Tony's magic, those, like, little moments that are just so carefully put together. Everything is perfect. It's just a, a one flawless shot of that could be up in a museum. Yeah. And people just I mean people just sit there watching it over and I over and over again. I was just in New again. York recently and Tony fooled me so hard by waving his hand over a card. He oh. waved his hand over a card and another one appeared and his hand was empty and I was like, I don't know cuz he put down a single card, he waved his hand over it and there were two and I was like, what the fuck just happened. Right? And it's it those moments. It's so perfect, so soft, so smooth, so you it, there's no, it's it's so Natural. There's mm -hmm. not a, a just a smidge of tension. There's not uh, a weird conceit that you're assuming people aren't going to care about. There's nothing. It's so the other perfect. one. Yeah, the other one that's like that for me is Chris Kenner's classic pass. Mm -hmm. 
Or just pass in general. I say the classic, like, there's just one. When Chris does a pass, I mean, the first time I saw him and met him, he was just sitting there, pass over, over, over. He was doing it, like, rapid fire. Boom, 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 boom. And it was, like, maybe five minutes is going by, and I'm kind of, like, watching his hands out of the corner of my eye. And I really start paying attention to it now. And I couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. And I go, are you doing the pass? He goes, yeah, I've been doing it for the last, like, ten minutes. I'm like, no way. But it was only like burning the, his hands and like trying to move around to get bad angles that I even saw anything. Yeah. And I've asked him about it and he like goes into detail about like how he worked so hard to lose all tension in his hands. Mm. In my opinion, I have yet to find someone that does what I think is a better pass than Kenner. Yeah. Visually, aesthetically, tension wise. Have you ever seen Homer do the pass? Lee Wag? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Really? But yeah, even seeing Homer do it. I love Homer. Homer's fantastic. You know what Homer does better than anyone in the world in my opinion? What? Sleeving. Oh, yeah. Oh, he well, yeah. He sleeves like a beast. But more specifically, oh, this is so bad. I'm sorry, Homer. <laughs> if you get requests, this is my fault. Derek Dingle. He's going to hear this. I know he is. He listens. I'm glad. He Unlike you. <laughs> you don't know. <clears throat> Homer does the bounce change. I love that change. He does the bounce change, and he does it so well. I got to see him do it. And Homer's like the most humble, modest guy in the universe. He's like, oh, I don't do stuff anymore. No, I don't really. I'll play with That's it. That's a pretty good Homer impression. It's okay. I'm just being soft-spoken about it. Because Homer's just like, he's just such a gentle genius. Yeah. So he takes the coin and he's like, oh, well, you know, I just I did like iconic this. And like almost like he has no confidence in the move. And then it's flawless. If you don't know what the bounce change is, it's like you have a half dollar in your hand. And you just turn your hand over and you just let it drop. It just falls from one hand to the other, back and forth, like a boop, 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 boop. And as it falls one time, it visually changes from, let's say, a silver coin to a copper coin, like in mid-air. And then your hands are empty. Very clean, empty hands. You drop it back and forth, back and forth, and then it just happens to be copper. And that's it. Yeah. It reads... <coughs> Excuse me. Where's the cough button? Um, it reads really... I think it reads actually pretty well. But the technique behind it, you go, that's impossible. There's a 0% chance anyone does this well. And then you see someone like Homer destroy you with it. And you're like, well, there goes my career in this world. I'm going to stop doing everything. When people like him exist, what am I here for? Yeah, what am I here for? Like comic relief? This is outrageous. <laughs> but that is like one of my favorite, like most beautiful, gorgeous changes. It's just, just the idea of having a coin drop. And as it's dropping, it changes in midair. Yeah. And it's an ungimmicked coin. Just hand it out. Yeah. You could borrow That's a coin something that needs theory. to be in a museum because the lay public has no idea what good magic is. So this really, this circles really back around point. to us shit-talking at the beginning about the castle, <laughs> which is they have to be educated. Every I think every magician, when they perform in front of an audience, they are educating the public on what magic In is. some ways, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think a big part of it is I'm of the mindset that the audience should recognize and know that they're in the, the hands of an expert. Everyone wants to be in the hands of an expert. For me, a lot of the history stuff, it's more about that, actually, the fact that the stuff that you know comes across... The depth and layers of depth. You and I want to live up to what our audience thinks we are. Yeah, uh, 100%. I have so much respect Some for my audience. Some people have never even had that thought. I mean, I think there's a certain, I hope there's a certain point with other magicians. And I think there certainly is. I have enough friends in magic where this, they've certainly hit this point. Oh, totally. Where you realize that your audience is smarter than you. Mm-hmm. There's a very important, I, and that's just a mindset as a magician I try and maintain at all times. My audience is smarter than me. So don't use methods that take them for granted. Don't use methods where you go, oh, they're dumb. They can't see this. And you hear that all the time. And it really irritates me. Because I'm with the exact opposite mindset. I'm like, my audience is so much smarter than me. As far as I'm concerned, this is a whole audience of absolute geniuses. Everyone's IQ is 160 plus. 
They do everything. They do things every day that I could never even begin to do. Can't even fathom what they're doing. You don't know if there's a rocket scientist in your audience or like a biomedical, you know, anomaly who cured everything. Yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. And there's, you know, like, I remember I was lecturing at like Denny and Lee's and afterwards a sweet, sweet man came up to me and he goes, you know, I really, really enjoyed the lecture. I said, oh, thank you. That's very kind. And he goes, no, but really what you're doing and what you do is very special. I hope you never have to, but if you ever need anything, please call me. And he goes, you really shouldn't need this. And he gave me his business card. And he was like, the, the chief neurosurgeon, you know, like it's all brain surgery this guy is doing at like Hopkins. And he yeah. was like the head of all of it. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, Denny and I talked afterwards about it. He's like, he saves lives every day. That's yeah. his job. And I'm like, wow, just wow, man. And he wants to sit in my audience and watch me do, you know, card tricks and things. It's yeah. like, it's a very, it's a very proud moment for me, but it's also a very humbling, humbling moment. Yeah. Extremely humbling. When you're like, this is the person that's going and saving lives every day so he can come hang out with me and you for a little bit and, you know, do some card tricks and step away from things for a while. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I always assume my audience is hyper-intelligent and it makes me work harder, one. Two, I try not to take them for granted. And the other thing I try to do is it, it, it will often cut an air of superiority that magicians usually take on. And if you ever want to see it in full action, teach a card trick to a layman and have them perform it for someone they know. And they don't try to be arrogant about things, but it's just how it comes across because they don't have the subtle nature of certain stuff. They want to they want to overprove the points that make the trick good. Mm -hmm. So they're like normal cards, right? And I know what they're doing. We we know what they're doing because we all did it when we first started with magic. You describe normal objects in ways and you have normal cards because you just want them to know they're normal. Yeah. But how do you make sure that they're normal? You just don't say anything. You just use them because they're normal cards. So it's like those little points they don't recognize, or they like deal cards down and stop, and they're about to like place a key card. Yeah. And like you could have stopped me anywhere. Is that right? Yeah. And they like they force the audience to react that way. Then they do like you know they drop the key card on it. They find the card and they just they just overdo all the moments where you're supposed to be, sort of be subtle, mm -hmm. and it can sort of like grate on your audience. But um, yeah, there's also something about being a bit more subdued and more casual with your audience. Yeah. You know, like people often don't you, adjust to the venue. Yeah. Or the performance setting. And and in an in an art form where you're breaking the fourth wall, you want to give your audience permission One hopes. to exhale. One hopes. Yeah. Giving them space to breathe. Oh, that's what, yeah. that goes back to the silence thing, right? Not yeah. being able to accept the silence. Or the other one is a lot of people can't accept um, discussion. Mm. They really want their audience to not say a word the entire show. And I think if you don't give people the opportunity to let certain stuff out during a show, very few people are chatting during a show, in my opinion, because they're trying to hurt your work. They're usually fascinated or really intrigued, and they just they they have to they have to get this out. With they somebody. have to confer with someone else. Yeah, they're like that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Share the experience. But look at it from the audience perspective. Let's say you're doing a show, okay? Small group, let's say 20, 30 people, and you're doing close up. So you're like you're in the close up gallery at the Magic Castle, for example, okay? And someone in the back row, it's a small room. You can hear everybody. Someone in the back row turns and goes, "That was the most amazing thing I've ever seen." And you, as a performer, don't want anyone talking, so you're like, "Excuse me." This is my show, or I'm in the middle of something. Like, you don't have any lines in the show. Thank you. Yeah, right? Whatever the line happens to be. Yeah. But the truth was they were celebrating what you just did, and you, you didn't have to say anything, you, you know? Yeah, you have uh, negatively reinforced. Yeah, and you've kind of like taught them to not, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like you've scolded them for no reason, where instead, just let them talk. And if you want to, wait a moment. Just wait, give, give them that little moment. It doesn't, sure. I don't think it hurts your work. Unless you're like trying to win FISM and you need to keep like a perfect 10 minutes, that's a different story. But if you're not trying that, let people experience it the way they experience it. It's almost like a, like a museum or an art exhibit. Let them walk around and just see whatever they want to see. Yeah. But and yeah. If you're, and, and in close-up specifically, most, not all, 
but a lot of close-up magic is interactive. And if oh, you're yeah. not allowing people to interact with each other, they're not going to want to interact with you. There's also that. There's um, a camaraderie. These people have never been an audience before. They have to become an audience. They, yeah, they become one, right? And hopefully you, begin, you become part of their tribe too, and you all become part of one thing in that moment. It's one experience we all shared. Yeah. As the first time I worked at the castle was uh, in the close-up gallery. I was doing one show, and uh, it was a funny moment. For me, when I'm performing, that's, it's a safe space. Is a safe space, which means no one gets attacked as a person. Yep. You can attack someone's actions. You can make something fun of something that someone has done or said, but you don't attack the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like talking. Um, so in psychology, there's other ways of describing things: situational and dispositional. Mm. You're an asshole is dispositional. Yeah. You are. It's not going to change. Situational is you're being an asshole. What you said is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very important to be situational about you know commentary if you want, not dispositional necessarily, unless it's a positive thing. So it should be a safe space. That also means between spectators. So I was performing. There's a moment where um, if I'm ever performing in like the close-up gallery or even the parlor, or wherever, whichever room or wherever my venue is, mm-hmm. I always choose my audience members based on where they sit, not based on who they are. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if you're really attractive or really unattractive. If you're big, you're small. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care what your background is. If you're sitting in that seat, you are my person. Yeah. Sometimes I choose like, okay, this trick, a gentleman will help me. So if a woman is sitting in that seat, I'll go to the right or to yeah. the left. You know, I have discretion that way. But generally speaking, I always pick the same person in the same spot. And the reason for that is it's because I know that my show tends to the left. I usually tend to like make a sort of quarter turn to the left as I'm doing stuff. And the right side doesn't get to see so much all the time. So to open it up, I force myself to choose people from the right more. Yeah. And that just forces my, my shoulders to square off on the audience and move more towards it balances you. Yeah. yeah. Aesthetically, it should visually balance things. So, so one time I'm doing it and uh, I'm performing. We get to a point. I was closing the show with the card through handkerchief. Straight out of Erdnays. Love that trick. Me too. It's a great trick. Um, and it was two little people were there. A husband and wife. And uh, the gentleman was sitting in the seat for the person that shuffles. So I said, sir, would you mind shuffling these for me? Mm-hmm. And uh, he takes the cards and he starts to like, and he's not the greatest card handler in the world. He starts to try to do it. And um, his wife kind of like chimes in and like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. I started to adjust it. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, this is not, this is not a democracy. We don't get to vote on who gets to do stuff. Yeah. I think he is perfectly capable. Thank you very much. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I said, no, no, it's fine. And um, I said, one more thing. It's one more thing. Oh, this wasn't a group. This wasn't a group effort. Yeah, this wasn't a group project. I think I think he's got this, and he's like story of my life. <laughs> and in a weird, I didn't. I wasn't doing it for that reason, but yeah. I it, it hit me hard that moment. He has this happen to him every day. Yeah, people assume things, try to help him with something. He's like, I don't need your help. Yeah, I'm fine with this. Yeah. So and that was my whole point. I said, this is a safe space. Okay, you no, this is not how this works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's got this, and it was cool. It was kind of a cool moment for him to have that. Afterwards, they came up and he was like, "You have no idea, you know. Thank you very much. We had a lot of fun. All the stuff you kind of the complimentary stuff, which was nice. Yeah. But that was a highlight moment for him, and yeah. I was oblivious to what I was saying. I was just that's what I would say to anyone sitting there yeah. if that happened. But yeah, man, like just respecting the audience and having you know those moments and things, and just keeping that space very, very safe. Yeah. Because people open up and they relax. And if people can relax with you, it's a completely yeah, different ballgame. Yeah, the, the molecules in the air change. Everything feels know? a little different. Like, I was telling you, I was at the castle the other night and saw David Malik perform. And he was like, well, someone else made the descriptor. He said he was savage, man. He was savage. And he was, like, he was like, but he was amazing. He was, uh, like, absolutely amazing. The audience interaction, the persona, like, he's living the part. 
perfectly. The voice, the look, the tricks, I mean, it all was copacetic. It all matched up perfectly. Yeah, it was cohesive. Yeah, it was great. So, like, he has two people, one person on his left and one on his right, two lovely young ladies. And he has the table, so there's, like, a flat edge towards the audience, and the round edge comes back to him. And there's a moment where they're sitting there, and they'll put their hands on the table, because that's a natural rest position for them. And he's like, hey, hands off the table. You know, there's, like, little moments like that that I'm like, I'm just dying in my chair. Yeah. Like, this is so good. Everything about this is just so good. And, you know, you can critique anyone's act, right? Of course. But the stuff that was just so amazingly standout was the personality, the interaction with people. And he was doing like proper incredible miracles. The stuff he was doing with the deck of cards was stunningly incredible. Yeah. But it was the little banter bits because it was all the little quips and things. Someone like put, they put her hand back on. Take hey. command of the room. Yeah, but he was like, he's like a little, I'm, I'm not going to say chauvinistic, but there's like a little bit of like a male dominant feel to him. Calls himself the king and stuff. That's that character that he's Yeah, but I, I, I love everything about it. You know, the hand comes up. Hey, sweetheart, hand off the table. It's the archetype of... Yeah. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a throwback to like old school Vegas almost. Yeah. You know, when that was the time. Hey, sweetie, hand off the table. You know, that was like stuff that he was throwing out there. Yeah. And it was all with love. It was all sweet. And it was all, you know, you knew it was part of the show. Yeah, exactly. But the again, atmosphere is right for it. But he was so good. Like everything matched up so perfectly. It just fit. And, mm-hmm. and he delivered it so well. I haven't had that good a time watching a show in like ages. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So if you get a chance to see Malik perform, absolutely go see Dave Malik's show. I don't know where he is performing, but presumably, hopefully at the castle again soon. Yeah. So someone else can see it. But yeah, it was a really, really, really neat show. But the audience interaction thing was a big eye opener. Yeah. Just to see how much fun everyone sort of had from an audience perspective. And of course, by bringing those two people in, they were allowed to do whatever they want. They yeah. just knew there was going to be some, like some sort of backlash, yeah. you know. And just knowing that was just like exciting. There was a certain like energy in the air. You yeah. just felt the electricity in the air. Um, and it was the last show of the night and of the week, you know. So it was like his final performance, um, and he just killed it. Absolutely killed it. That's great. Yeah, that's really cool. Did how you you did a show with Maddie, right? Yeah. How all right? I want to know about that from inception to completion. What that was. That is a question for Maddie and I to both be present for. Okay. But we will make that possible. Maddie and I will both come and sit down and be in the same place with you, and we will happily talk about modern magic. Okay. It was a really cool show. It was a fun show. Can you just give people an idea of what it was? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, basically, because I don't really know what it was. Oh, so Maddie's a, Maddie's a, like one of my closest magic friends. I absolutely adore Maddie, and um, we're both from Toronto. Maddie was I was I think one of the first magicians that sort of like saw Maddie. He came out to one um, group event thing at the magic shop in Toronto on I think it was on Erdnays, and he uh, it was supposed to be the Erdnays meetup and blah blah blah. And he did an overhand shuffle to retain top stock and just blew my mind with it. I was like, oh my god. Do that again, because you just, you just don't believe it. Maddie's so incredible at what he's doing because you have no conception of what's happening because yeah. you've just never been in that situation before. Yeah. So everything is new and everything's amazing. So Maddie did it again. I'm like, that, I'm so blown away by this. So we hit it off really well. Um, I did a zero shuffle workshop way back in the day. Maddie came out to that as well. And we've just been like really good friends ever since all this stuff, since meeting. So we were talking about like Magic in Toronto and doing a show and working on stuff. And Maddie and I were talking about, um, he, had a, he didn't really have a proper suit. I said, well, you got it. You need a suit. Yeah. Come see my tailor. So I have a tailor in Toronto. Good friend. So we go see my tailor, Don. Maddie comes in and he's like, can you make a suit for me? And he's like, absolutely. And they made him an incredible set of tails. And if you don't know, sorry, Maddie, the tails are detachable too. So it's a convertible suit. So he's like, he can take the tails off and wear it as like just a suit. Mm-hmm. Or he can wear it as a full, you know, three piece. Um, so Maddie now has a suit. Now he has this 
but like beautiful, proper, full bespoke outfit. We're like, we should do a show here because the venue that my tailor has is incredible. It's this amazing mansion at this corner, this like shady, sketchy corner in Toronto. And you walk in and the building is like an attic. It's a scene from Alice in Wonderland. Like the walls are peeling off, but it's artwork. Like it looks like art. There's like waves coming off the walls. There's just beautiful, amazing glasswork everywhere. You know, if you're walking down the stairs to like the cutting room and like the press room, and the ironing room and stuff, there's these beautiful like glass roses on the wall. And there's these like blue um, glass flowers sort of things on the stairs going up. They just light it up. It just starts glowing. This, this wall downstairs just these little slips of wood. So it's beautiful. Like, it's like his entire place is a museum. Yeah. And there's one room called the showroom, you know, where he wanted to have a showroom with mannequins and things. I was like, oh, man, it would be so good to do a show in here. He's like, we should do it. And the tailor's like, you guys should do a show together. We were like, we never really thought about that. Yeah, let's talk about this. So Maggie and I started chatting about it. And we just slowly wanted to put together a show. And the idea for Modern Magic was we wanted to show people a bunch of magic under the auspice of Modern Magic. And of course, the whole idea was that it was going to be a throwback. We we're going to try and show people and perform a bunch of beautiful magic for people and tell stories and make it entertaining for people. And then in the second act, we were going to lead into it and explain what you've just seen tonight is all at least 100 years old. We wanted to give people what they thought was modern magic, beautiful, beautiful visuals, really beautiful magic. But it was modernized. actually from modern magic. <laughs> exactly. And that was the kicker at the end of it was we yeah. wanted to let them know that, hey, by the way, there's this book published back in the day and this is what it was. Yeah. Um, so that was what, what sort of, that was a seed that started the, the whole thing up. We want to be largely historically based stuff or a lot of stuff where we had great stories for things, but we want to separate the magic for here's stuff where it's presented with the history. And then there's some that are presented without the history of this stuff. And we wanted that to give the audience, here's what magic is. This is modern magic. Then we lied to you. We're so sorry. Here's what we actually did. These are all from this year or before a book was published called modern magic by professor Hoffman. So that was kind of the basis of the show that we wanted to do. We wanted to have two different concepts of it. And then we wanted to end the show with um, uh, an exploration of Erdnays, which was really more about an exploration of how Maddie and I met. Mm-hmm. And there's, there was one piece in the show that really hit well. Um, I'll wait till Maddie's here with me to kind of go over it. But we wanted to have that moment. And then we were going to end the show and say, there is modern magic, of course, that exists. Maddie and I each have a particular piece of magic that we consider to be more contemporary. Um, but it's a trick that really we only do. I don't know anyone else that does my particular effect. Maddie doesn't know anyone else that does his particular effect for obvious reasons. And we ended on what we would consider like our most masterful pieces of magic. Yeah. And that was kind of what, what it was and what it is. Um, so it still exists. We had an amazing artist, Stefan Eriksson in, in Sweden, um, paint a poster for us. So the poster for Modern Magic was like a, a beautiful acrylic painting. So we have that uh, back home in Toronto. Um, I, I need to get it scanned and like properly digitized and stuff and then printed so we actually have copies of it. And if anyone has like a Geekly printer and wants to print some magic posters, uh, it would be awesome to do it on like a proper canvas. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's kind of the, that's a little bit about what the show was without yeah. talking about the specific material and things. But the Erdnays piece, there was a whole like section on Erdnays we wanted to do as well. And uh, we start by talking about how Maddie and I met with this Erdnays meeting and it was over this particular book. And then the, there's a really cool moment when we, um, we read Erdnays to the audience and demonstrated in real time. Mm-hmm. Twice. Cool. It was the strongest part of the show. It was the craziest thing because we're like, we're doing all these like, what we think are miracles and really strong magic. And then we get to this thing and everyone just loves the story. They love the story of the, like, the book and how we met. And then watching it happen twice, mm-hmm. the particular technique, while we're reading what's happening. So yeah. it's literally like you're dictating the book and you're following along exactly in time with the speech. Mm-hmm. So what that really became was a, a remarkable test of timing. We had to time it just perfectly so that the pauses worked 
Because there's moments in Erdnays where we're describing stuff that doesn't apply to Maddie. Yeah. And Maddie's a great ham. He's so good at playing it up. So when I'm like, okay, now the, the left fingers do this and this and this and that, he just stop. He just look up at the audience. He's so good at like puppy eyes. He looks up at the audience, and he look at me, and I look back at him. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it got a great reaction, a good sure, laugh. Yeah. And then Maddie smiled too because it is funny. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I can do it. And then he does it. You know, yeah. he's like, oh my God, it's even better. Yeah. So after Maddie finished the technique, for example, you show that it's the same outcome, but the audience got hit so hard by it. Yeah. And the fact that they saw it, heard the method as it was being done, and then heard it a second time, the amazing part was everyone was still fooled by all of it. Even yeah. when I was doing it, they're fooled. When Maddie was doing it, they were fooled. Um, because even though that we've described the technique that we were doing, no one could see it. It wasn't a visual thing. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. They can hear it, and they kind of conceptually go, oh, okay. But they couldn't visually see the deception. Yeah. They were deceived. Yeah. Um, so that was a neat moment, because it also got two really strong reactions. The first reaction was when I do it, and it works. Like, oh, my God, that worked. And the reaction gasped. They laughed, because it's sort of funny. Then we do it again with Maddie, and it works with Maddie too. And of course, we have a few moments in between for laughs. So it actually yeah. became this like this really interesting theatrical piece about Erdnays. Yeah. Uh, in the end, that one little section, the third act, was sure. sort of Erdnays based. Uh, and then we had a couple. I think there was a couple tricks we did after that that were just straight out of Erdnays. Um, yeah, but it was it was a super cool, fun show. We went to Finland and did it together in Helsinki. That's cool. Um, I did part of it. Maddie couldn't make it, which was too bad. Um, but I did part of it in Montreal. And I got booked for something, so he couldn't make it. Um, but I told him we were going to do some stuff from Modern Magic, so I'm like, it's fine. I'll do a few pieces that I do in the show, and we can sort of talk about it. Um, yeah, it was a cool show. So Maddie and I were going to do the show um, in Toronto, and we wanted to get going. But the problem was our schedules never lined up. We traveled so much out of the city that we just we couldn't find the time when we were both there to actually put it on. And my tailor was like renovating this room because he wanted to be more Alice in Wonderland. He was like literally hand carving and, you know, creating plaster ornamental um, pieces to go around his fireplace. Yeah. He was building this big, beautiful, amazing fireplace. Um, so, and that's still, in, that's still in progress. I saw my tell like four days ago and he's still working on it. So I'm like, <laughs> well, we didn't really miss out on that particular thing. So what I would like to do now is because Maddie's schedule is so fret, uh, frantic yeah. and uh, mine is hectic as well, we find very little time together like that, but we try to chat a lot. Um, what I'm going to try to do is I would like to start at least doing close-up magic in that venue on a basis whenever I'm home. Whenever right, I'm home, yeah. put on the show. Um, and, and there's a whole experience that we want to build around modern magic as well. Even like how you enter the building and how you're greeted and all that stuff we had different ideas for. So I want to do it as a close-up venue, a really high-end close-up venue for people to get a little bit dressed up, come to this like weird space in the middle of nowhere. And it would be like a really cool experiential thing as well as coming to see a show. Um, and what I wanted to do was build it in such a way that if I'm in town, I can do it. If Maddie's in town, Maddie can do it. And if we're both there, we can do modern magic. Yeah. So because our schedules aren't lining up so much, and that was a very recent idea. So Maddie that's also really a super easy yet. way. And this is uh, way more showbiz than what you were just talking about, which is a beautiful artistic endeavor. But doing that is... Well, let's not get carried away. We went to McDonald's a lot and ate a lot of Big Macs as we worked on this show. But yeah. Yeah, but the, yeah, <laughs> but the audience didn't see that. Or maybe they did see it. Actually, you uh, know, we did Modern Magic in Finland. This is one of my favorite convention moments. So we're sitting down after the show and stuff and we're like, does anyone have any questions about this stuff? Because sometimes it's intriguing to ask, like, where do you find the material? Or how do you come up with this? Is it hard working together? Things like that. Yeah. And the answer is no. It's super easy to work with Maddie. Um <laughs> It is. It I'm really just is. kidding. I was just kidding. The only thing that's like difficult is like sometimes, you know, if, if, if his shoelace comes untied, you know, and it's like backstage, it's like, oh shit, I need to do this. So, yeah. you know, but other uh, than I'm that, just it, there's no qualms. I'm just kidding. Um, and Maddie's so much fun to be with. Yeah. So the, the fun part about, I lost my train of thought now. 
Oh, right. So we're, we're in Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. We're in Helsinki. And we had like a little talk afterwards. We do the show and then a Q&A. Yeah. And during the Q&A, someone asked a question like, are you guys hungry or something? Because you guys, we've been talking a lot. And it's kind of late. And I'm like, I would kill for a Big Mac right now. Maddie's like, yeah, if we get McDonald's, that would be amazing. The organizer's son actually went out and brought us back McDonald's. <laughs> so we're like, we're eating Big Macs and we're chatting with people. And it became this like, there's almost like this cool like bonfire kind of experience, you know? Yeah. It was just awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Um, I'm missing the term. What's the term? Um, not bonfire experience. Um, anyway. Anyway. What I was saying was, uh, yeah, you doing that show or Maddie doing a show there is a great way to build this kind of uh, electricity for modern magic. Like it only happens yeah. every so long. You know, it's well, that's the other thing way. was we wanted it to be special. We really did want it to be special. We didn't yeah. want it to be like a regular show that anyone could just come and see. Um, even when it is going to be put up in sort of a, a more regular venue, the venue can only hold a small number of people, maybe 30 people we could fit with chairs yeah. and stuff. So it was never meant to be a big show. Yeah. Um, it could take a stage. You could do it on stage, but we never want it to be some big blowing out extravaganza. Sure. It was really meant to be a small special experience for people. And a large part of it was also that we were using my, my, my friend and Maddie's friend, my friend Don, the tailor, using his, his space. We also wanted it to be an opportunity for him to allow his clients to come and experience something really unique because he's all about experiences too. Mm-hmm. Even the way that his place is dressed up. So it's not like a stuffy tailoring studio, which there's so many of. His is like a much more freeing, welcoming environment. You really feel alive when you walk into that tailoring room and all the fabric and stuff is there and the swatch books and things. Yeah. It's just a, such an amazing experience just to visit, you know, let alone to be able to go into another room and have a show like that. So yeah. we really wanted to build experience around everything. And that includes having one chair for our tailor that's always available for him no matter what. And, you know, he can comp whoever he wants. It, whoever he wants to come to the show, yeah, bring him to the show. Like that kind of thing. We wanted to build this exclusive experience where yeah, it yeah. really was us being able to handpick. And that often would mean turning people away. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the reality of it. Even if we're not sold out, we don't want certain people coming to a show. Um, maybe we're working on something new or this isn't the right time for this person to see it. That doesn't mean magicians. I mean, it could be. It could be anybody. Maybe yeah. there's like a bunch of event planners who want to come see the show and we're working on something new and we're not planning to do the original one that we were doing. We want to work in something new. We would be like, I'm so sorry, this show isn't available anymore. We're sold out, even if we weren't. Yeah. So we had that concept as well. Matt and I have some personal just rules about sort of the business side of it, sure. which, um, which we both agreed to, and that we're just like governing how we would go about tickets sure. and things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a really cool experience to build a show with someone like that. Yeah. And Maddie was great to work with on all of that stuff. We we had so much fun, so many really good late nights. So you become very close with things, and you really mm-hmm. start to understand someone more. Um, but what we really found was Maddie and I are really good at writing together. We came up with some really neat presentations for some of these tricks um, just by jamming back and forth. And I'll never forget, like, Maddie wrote this one presentation and afterwards he read it and he was like, this is terrible. So he went back and we, like, we had to write it again and again. I wrote mine and thing and mine was terrible too. And we were just so critical with each other yeah. that we were forced to do better. Yeah. Uh, and the, the work, I think, speaks for itself. You really see like, that, that quantum leap forward in uh, what we started with and what we ended with. Um, and it was not a one-man show like that. I mean, we, we both... Collaboration to, is so important. Yeah, but like correct or proper collaboration too. Not yeah. just being like, oh, I'll do all this, you do all that, good luck. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, that's not collaboration, that's... Exactly, yeah. that's like delegation. Yeah. Um, Hopefully we'll bring the show somewhere else. I mean, I would love to bring it to LA. That yeah, would be fun. Yeah, that would be very cool. But it usually boils down to one problem, venue. If you get the venue, the show can exist, you know? And scheduling. If our schedules work and we had a venue... Um, yeah, Modern Magic would be a really fun show to bring here. I think people would really enjoy it. Um, there, what was the other thing? I don't remember what I was about to say. <laughs> but let's see how long we've been going. 220. 220? Killing it. 
Nailed it. <laughs> um, there's a couple things I like to ask at the end. Um, one of which is... Actually, there's really only one thing I like to ask at the end, but there's another question I wanted to ask, and I'm not remembering it either. So we're going to end <laughs> with the regular question, Let's which hear. is... Hopefully you'll jog, and then we'll do the other one too. Uh, when And I've been asked, I realized whenever I had this sort of epiphany about... Because I've always hated the word fooled. I was like, I don't like uh-huh. that word. That's not what it is that I love. But it's the word that I use. I'm like, eh. So recently I was like, ah, oh, no, this is not the right word. I'm going to... I have to do it better. So... The question is, when was the hardest time or the most impactful time? When did you feel astonishment the most? What's the story? Wow, that's a really good question. It's a very good question. Like you jumped out of your socks astonished. Like blown away astonished. Totally blown away, a full body response. You know what? I'll tell you one, and then I'm not sure if it quite fits the criteria, but you'll understand what I mean by it. It was like the first trick I ever saw. I think I was like maybe eight, nine years old. We were at my grandfather's place at the time, and my grandfather did a card trick. And it was a trick that the everyone knew how it worked but me. It mm-hmm. fooled one person. Mm-hmm. But I was so badly fooled. I was so fooled, I couldn't even conceptualize how. But I also believed the bullshit. Mm-hmm. But he's like, oh, I can, I can, I can see through this, or I can read minds, or I can predict the future. Like he said that kind of presentation, which is sort of cheese now. Yeah. But for an eight-year-old kid, I believed it. It's my grandpa. I believed he could do it. And then he demonstrated with a deck of cards, and he just like floored me with it. Yeah. And as a kid, I, and no one would tell me how it worked. And we have a pretty big family, considering, you know. So no one would tell me. No one would share the method for it. Yeah. He just did it, fooled me badly, and I was just like left there with nothing, with no explanation, no words. And um, it was only like years later when my mom told me, like, you know how that worked, right? I'm like, I had no idea. I was fooled for years. Like, years. Yeah. Probably into my late teens, I was still fooled by it. Or like, mid-teens. Um, that was certainly like a powerful, powerful astonishment moment. No question. I'm trying to think of another one that's like a little bit later on. Because I was so young at that time. Yeah. Like, sort of like in my more adult life, seeing something just being totally blown away by it. One other moment that really just destroyed me. I just and I loved to see it live. I'm trying to avoid like any sort of television-based magic. I'm thinking just live experiences. Going to see the, uh, David Copperfield's show when he makes his his father, his grandfather's car appear, the car appearance on like the two pedestals. Yeah. I've never been blown away like that before. That was such a powerful moment to me. Okay, curtains go up, boom, whisked away, car, yep. huge car. David gets up in it, starts it up. Just that appearance was so powerful and so, like, it was, it, it, the experience was so mind-blowing because it was like, there was nothing there. Then a second later, there's a car there. That just destroyed me. Absolutely floored me. Um, you said said first time, though. Oh, no, I I said the hardest time. No, the the hardest time. The strongest. Yeah, that's probably the strongest. That car appearance is so strong to me. Yeah, mind beyond blown. Absolutely blown. Uh, that's great have you ever been have you ever felt astonishment when watching something where you knew how it worked all the time oh yeah I mean well I think there's a certain different type of astonishment it's like it's an appreciation for the astonishment but if I know what someone's doing and someone does it I mean everything Steve Forty's ever done go watch that 52 video on the Steve Forty DVDs and there's that that last deck switch that last cooler where, you know, I know that he's going to do a deck switch. You kind of know it. It gets primed that it's going to happen. 
And then he just, you know, mixes the cards. And he's like, well, that was cooler, buddy. <laughs> yeah, Jason's like, oh, it looks good. A couple undercuts. Oh, it looks like maybe a couple run cuts. So was it a, was it a false cut? Full deck false cut? He's like, it's cooler. <laughs> he's like, no way. You know, and it goes through it. You see the red and then just changes to blue as he's cutting cards. That astonished me. Yeah. That was like a rewind, do it again. That should also be up in a museum. I would love to do an exhibit where it was just like, hey, Steve. He should just be in a cage. <laughs> yeah. We'll get him like a, we'll a screen so just his hands come through. There you and go. And it's just live performance. No, I think, you know, that'd be an amazing art exhibit in a funny way. If someone like got Steve Forty to just do like some of the most beautiful, incredible, mind-blowing what, techniques. Delgadio had a, had a thing. Do you remember that? This yeah, was wasn't like, it like a walk through China? It was like eight. Eight, no, well, no, that's a, a different bandit, thing. That whole thing? Yeah, that was an A-Bandit thing. I think this is before A-Bandit. Or maybe oh, okay. it was during, but he had a thing where he had a, a little, I think it was called the failure room or something, but he would go in and just practice and people could watch him practice. That's really cool. Yeah. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. I mean, it's a beautiful idea to take the, the art of magic and allow people to peer into times and places where they're not usually allowed. Yeah. Or that's just kind of not meant Because to it's see. fascinating. People want to know. Is. They're inter- genuinely interesting. I'm always fascinated by people that are like really against any sharing of any method of any sort, like any expose of sorts. Like I think a good gambling demo can really impact an audience. And often when audiences ask you methodology of things, if you do some sort of demo like that really well, you do two things. One, you show them what you're doing, you explain what you're doing. And if you're good enough and someone knows what you're doing, they're still fooled by it. Yeah. There's a certain level of proficiency with certain moves, I think. It becomes a higher level of appreciation. Yeah, exactly. You know, But even if I said, I'm going to be doing a second deal, and I start dealing cards, now you're, they when are can't you going actually to do it? see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was like, give me an hour from one in ten. Well, seven. Doom, boom, boom. Ah, I'm, I'm sorry, I dealt eight. Anyways, the ace is still on top. You yeah. turn it over. Oh, my God, that's a magic trick to them. Yeah. We'll do it again. Just, then you start dealing rapidly, for example. I'm just, you know, whatever I'm doing. Sure. Turn it over. The ace is still there. Now you leave it face up mm-hmm. and start doing really tight um, strikes, yeah. for example, like no brief or like really, really fine briefs. Yeah. That is an astonishing moment for them. That is a moment of astonishing. They don't even know that was possible. Yeah. Usually the reaction if they're close and you know, you're being very casual about it is they want to pick it up and try themselves, which yeah. fails miserably. Um, but if I'm going to use a second deal in a trick, I can use it. They're not going to see it. They're not going to know. They'll have no idea. Yeah. They will truly be baffled by it. And so, that's, that's like, you know, people will say, well, now every time you deal cards, they're going to assume you're doing that. It's like, I don't think that's how people work. It's not how people work. I think that you're, you're really, it's a misconception that if yeah. people have a bit more information that they're like extraordinarily educated with a fine, sharp eye. Yeah, if, just everything. because people have more information doesn't mean it changes the way they view the world. Being able, to, knowing is not the same as doing yeah. and being able to do, you know? They know, but they don't know. Yeah. You, I mean, there's lots of techniques in magic where I can, I can expose it to a magician and then fool them a moment later with that exact technique yeah. just because you don't expect it or the timing is right or the move is hidden really well. Or it's executed really, really, really well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I do a side steal like that where, you know, they know what I'm doing, but magician, what, what are you doing there? And it's fooling them. But yeah. it's only because the technique is a little bit unorthodox about how I approach it and, and how I'm trying to make the card change. But they know what I'm doing, but they're still fooled by it. And that's magicians being fooled by yeah. it. Um, that's magicians not being, that's like, for me, that goes into that thing of like, yeah, I don't know how you're doing it. I also, like, it's not doing anything for me. Oh, yeah. There's that, yeah. that other world, too, which yeah. is unfortunate. But I think there's, like, there's enough technique or, or there's enough stuff that you can do. Yeah. It's just a different thing. It's like if a it, trick works. Yeah. You know? So it's also, so there's also the context of, like, how I'm supposed to appreciate it as a layperson. True. So magician to magician, instead of it being like, uh, here, I want to show you a magic trick to fool you uh, or to, to give you astonishment. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. 
And then you do it, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know how you did it, but I wasn't astonished. I don't care. But if it's like, hey, I'm going to show you this thing that you probably know, and it's not about giving you astonishment, it's just interesting, I'm going to be way more receptive to that introduction and be like, oh, yeah, dude, that is really cool. It's Absolutely. a different framing of the thing. Well, I have another moment when I was really like badly and hard like fooled. Yeah. Lance Burton's act. Mm-hmm. The act. Yeah. That was the such act. a beautiful, everything about it was just stunningly beautiful. Um, but going back to it, I think one of the things that Derek did so well with that exhibit, like having people able to peer into his practice session, I think we often as magicians deny our audiences something very special, which is an honest conversation with the magician. Yeah. Because there's infinite curiosities. That goes back to what I said earlier about you have an opportunity, you have a responsibility to educate them about magic. Not literally, necessarily, but mm-hmm. you are educating them by the fact of being in the room. Sure. But you also have the opportunity to legitimately educate them if yeah. they're interested. I feel there's a small obligation to allow that door to be open. And if they'd like to walk through it, they will tell you. They'll ask you. But you don't have to force anything upon someone. You but shouldn't. If you're, if you're doing stuff well and they're really intrigued by you or they're taken back by what you're doing, your personality or whatever it is, your presentations, they will have questions. Yeah. And this is obviously in informal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in a very casual performance. Saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but if it was a more formal performance, that's different. That's yeah. a whole different story. But I think, you know, in informal situations, we do often deny our audiences the ability to just have a, a chat with a magician. Yeah. It is a cool world. And you it's, have it's to have cool stuff. You have to have the self-awareness to understand what the context is for what you're doing. Exactly. You know, and be real about it. What was the other question? I don't remember. Did that, that, that second question. That's too bad. Well, no. we'll have to. It's actually the first question. The second question was the fooling question. Right. Well, I'm sorry we're not going to answer the first question. They don't even know what the first question is. This Has it is never been asked thing. before? No. It's revolutionary. It's this is the first thing. time it was going to be auditioned. And it's in my phone, but I don't know where it is in the phone, so I can't. <laughs> even better. We'll, like, chop it in later. We'll do, like, a real written version of it. <laughs> we'll answer in text form. Yeah. You can go to his blog. He answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's Chasing Dovetails. It probably, there, honestly, is already there. That, the blog was a, is a fun thing to write. I mean, you, but, like, you run out of topics to write about. That was the hardest part was coming up with stuff to write. Because like your, your, your writing skills sort of like catch up with your ability to come up with things to write about. It's almost like you become too good at the writing side of it. Not to say that I was a masterful writer, but just that there hits a certain point when you're like, well, I feel like I can write anything. Not necessarily true, but you get the feeling. Yeah. You're like, well, You've built that new, momentum. Yeah. yeah, it's a new day. Now what do I write? Um, but, but the amazing thing was the frequency encouraged the writing. So it was hard to write once a week. It was easy to write every day of the week. Yeah. As counterintuitive as that is. I can't imagine that being true. It's 100% true. I 100% believe you. It forces you to relax. 100% believe you. Just, you take it less seriously. You don't, you don't, you're not sitting there going, okay, I need to revolutionize the world with my words. You're just like, what am I going to write about today? How about this? And it's, it's also the intent of making it interesting for someone else to read. Yeah. So like the intention is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And that really changes and makes the, the experience like a really, really cool one. So... Intention is key. Intention is key. Yeah, I miss it. I'm, I'm gonna, the blog will come back. I will continue writing it again. I miss it. I miss it a lot. Yeah. Um, especially with the traveling now. I've got so much time to write. Usually, here's another thing that people don't know about the blog. I actually used to write those every morning on the spot. That wasn't like a, I would wake up and I would write 40 of them and then I would slowly, you know, like drip them out every, every day. That was every single day I would write something new. Mm-hmm. And it was like the morning of that, I would write something for that. It was never like I had this big planned thing. Um, I do have a notebook somewhere though with like two or three pages of just topics to talk about that I never, I never hit. Uh, if I find that notebook, you'll see. You'll like, be in business. <laughs> yeah, you'll see an explosion of writing come out of chasing dovetails again. But it'll come back. I'll bring the blog back again. I miss it too much. I got to do it. 
Well, thanks for doing this. I Thank you for having me. Is there anything you awesome. want to plug? Do you need to plug anything? I got nothing to plug. There's nothing to plug. Good. <laughs> Best way to do things. I hate it when people plug. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, if I, when there's something to plug, you know, you will, you'll hear about it. When there's something to plug, I will give you a call and we'll sit down hopefully again. We can chat about it and I'll, I'll yeah, plug away. Yeah, And we got to do it with Manny. Yeah, that's what I want to do too. Have Maddie here as well and the two of us. Maybe we'll get Modern Magic, a venue in LA. And when we do, we'll come here and we'll do a podcast and everything else for it. We can time everything just right. Sounds perfect. Fingers crossed. Well, thanks so much again, man. This is awesome. Thank you. Had a good time. Yeah, you killed it. Woo! Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, email me at podcast at artofmagic.com to let me know your thoughts or... Join the conversation at the Facebook group dedicated to Magical Thinking listeners. You can find it by searching for Magical Thinking Podcast on Facebook and give us a like over on the Facebook fan page while you're at it. If you enjoyed the show, share the episode or episodes that you found most interesting and inspiring and let people know what you got out of it. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers.